And welcome back to the Book and Life Podcast. I am your host, Crystal Fleming, and I'm going to be on with an incredible writer who's come all the way from a signing and rushed terribly and is absolutely the sweetest thing on the planet. And I can't wait to introduce you to her. But first off, as you know, we do the advert for Marianne Curley's The Shadow Time Guardian Book 4 novel. The battle is over, the war is won, the prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan. Struggling to cope with tragic loss, at odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping at shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for God death, Lathena's death, Giselle swears revenge and fullified the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love. And that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battle through the past and into an impossible future, darkness lurks around every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And with that being said, and obviously it's a lot of fun, I have the great and distinct pleasure of welcoming Deborah Carr. Now, please tell me I've said that right, because I've had a week of getting people's names wrong. <laughs> no, my name is, as as it's written, really Deborah Carr. Yeah, that's right. Woohoo! <laughs> I've, I've had some Americans on, and I, I, of course, I pronounce it the English way. And then I get told, no, that's not right. So <laughs> I spent no, all the week getting corrected. Quite difficult, can't they? Yeah, and, and in different in different places, they can say things in different ways as well. Yeah, and it's it's crazy. I just feel like I'm lagging a bit behind in the old knowledge department. So, <laughs> so tell us about what you're excited about, whether it's a new release or one that you've got upcoming. Tell us all about it. We're we're dying to hear. Okay, well, I've I've actually got two. I write for two publishers. So I write historical fiction for uh, HarperCollins' One More Chapter division. And I write uplifting contemporary romance series for Boldwood Books. Um, And I have the first in a new series, uh, Finding Love on Sunshine Island. It's a new series, Sunshine Island series, um, coming (laughs) out on the 25th of May with Boldwood Books. Uh, that that comes out in ebook, paperback, large print, and audiobook all on the same day, which is very exciting. And then on the twenty first of July, I have my next Upper Collins book out, and that's called The Beekeeper's War. Uh, that's historical fiction set in it's in two parts: set in First World War and the Second World War. Well, that sounds amazing. I must admit, I've seen the advert on your email for them, and I I love the look of them. I really do. I'm a bit of a World War uh, Two fanatic sometimes because I grew up in Shetland where they had so, so much to do with the war, but people outside the island don't actually know about it. So I always thought it was to hear the stories from the actual people themselves that served yeah. and you know have lived that long afterwards was always really interesting for me and. And history in general for Shetlander is amazing because you're you live it every day. There's Viking settlements all over the islands. There's you know World War Two museums and monuments all over the islands. So that's the two kind of areas that they really kind of drum into us at school because it, it's fabulous. places they can go. Yeah. So um, 
I love it. And I, I must admit, I love the covers. I think they're absolutely amazing. And I, yes. I've got them on my TBR for sure. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much. I <laughs> hope you enjoy them. Um, I mean, Living, Living Jersey, um, my most recent book uh, that came out last year, An Island at War, um, that was set on the island of Jersey. Um, most of my books are either set here or set partially here. Um, and yeah. the island uh, is part of the Channel Islands. So people, uh, especially America, will mostly know the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. So Guernsey. Yep. Um, that's the next. Uh, Jersey's the biggest island and Guernsey's the next smallest. And we're off the coast of France. And, and the islands were occupied from nineteen the summer 1940 to May 1945. Each one was liberated on a different day. We were liberated on the 9th of May. And uh, so that book was set on the island during the occupation. Um, there were letters from a younger sister who was evacuated, like my father was, uh, to London and obviously had to live through the Blitz. But yes, like you yeah. say, there are reminders every single day. I mean, we have bunkers all along the coast, all over the place. Um, part of Hitler's Atlantic Wall goes right across the bay nearest to me, St. Juan's Bay. And, you know, the, the, the place was bombed as well. Um, and mm -hmm. it was a very, very dark and difficult time. The islanders who, who stayed on the island throughout that time almost starved to death, um, as, as did the German soldiers themselves in the end. So it was a very dark yeah. time, and but like like with you, you have reminders all the time because there are these bunkers. And I mean, growing up, I didn't actually pay any attention to them at all. Just like sit on one to read a book or <laughs> sunbathe or something. Um, yeah, I think we all do have that, yeah. much more of a resonance. Yeah, I, I think as we grow up, we kind of almost appreciate what's around us more. I think yeah. because we can understand it, we can take it in a bit more. And I think I always took Shetland in a way to, for granted because I didn't understand why there was all these buildings that were built out the ocean. And I didn't get, the, I didn't understand that Shetland had this huge history that had nothing to do with the islanders and everything to do with Viking history and smuggling and World War II stuff. So like my, my grandfather, um, both of them served and they liked to take time with me when I was growing up and they would tell me stories and say, I always loved it. Cause they would start off with, you don't know how lucky you are. Yeah. Like that was the start of every story. Very, very true. So I knew it was coming. It was always going to be a war story of, of why I should appreciate the time that I was in and, the the time that was coming forward and stuff like that um and i loved it i think they probably sort of shoved me into history in a way for that reason and i was never great at it in school but i am i find myself loving it the older i got and understanding it more and you know when i sat down and i did my own historical drama and i'm, I'm still working on it but I took stories from the bus missions and I tied it in with the royal family, the last lineage of royalty that was attached to Shet. And I thought that was such a good way because you get a bit of the Downton Abbey feel to it. But then you've okay. also got the realism of all these people, you know, listening to the Marantine radio in their houses thinking, is that my husband's ship going down? Or is oh, that, gosh, yes. you know, who's that that's in trouble? And my, my great-grandmother, she was an amazing woman. She actually had the, uh, I always remember this so vividly, but she had the, the, the Marantime radio in her living room. And she had lost quite a couple, I think it was two or three husbands to the ocean. Cool. And she would sit 
And if somebody's ship didn't come back, she was the first person that would go around because she mm. knew the police were not the most, or the Coast Guard were not the most um, great, great at the passing on of bad news. So she would actually go along and she would be the first kind of person they would see and she would bring them something, whether it was cake or... I suppose she you knew know, better than probably most how they felt. Yeah, and that was the thing. And she would she would jump on the door and they'd go, Oh, go bath are we up here for and and she would say, I've come about Larry or come about Lawrence or whatever and they would kinda know then mm. that she'd heard it. And and some of the men, like particularly, they would they would actually radio in uh what they would call dying messages and then she would pass them on. So it was almost like a very strange way of kind of... I connected with her through that growing up in Yale for a little bit of the time that I did. And I just couldn't believe that this amazing woman was my, my grandmother. It's absolutely um, fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, I wish I'd got, I wish she'd sort of lived a lot or longer time because yeah. I would have loved to have heard her stories about the bus and about what she did with that and her involvement with that kind of stuff because there was even kind of from my grandfather's perspective there's very few stories told about the women that were actually involved in the bus projects so a lot of people think oh it's just the fishermen that would go out there no actually a lot of the women were involved in not just making sure the meals were going with the men but they were you know some of them were going out and they were fishing for the community and they were making stuff for the community like it was a literally as soon as that noise broke that the war was started the community just fired all of their stuff together so that no kid would go without nobody would be hungry and it really became a bonded community in a way yes but it was bonded through loss yes yeah I think that that happened an awful lot, and I think but it needed to really, didn't it, for people to survive in an awful lot of cases. Yeah, and I I, I like that, and I, I kind of almost miss that community spirit in a way because you don't really get that same sort of community spirit now. And, uh, yeah, so when the pandemic hit, I was surprised how much Shetland came together during yeah. that. yeah. And I was and very, very grateful. All I know of Shetland is is the fabulous series on television. I love it. <laughs> what do you think of that? Interesting. I use that word a lot. Inter- it just doesn't feel like Shetland to me. It just feels so alien that series because you know we're not all raving lunatics trying to kill each other. <laughs> we did have for quite a few years. We had a series filmed here called Bergerac. Uh, back in the yeah. 80s, I think it was. And it was the same thing. <laughs> it's like trying to tell people, we're not all diamond smugglers. We're not, you know, all, all like yep. kidnappers and murderers. We're actually very ordinary people. Um, they've just made it about the island. So, yes, I, I can understand and appreciate what you think about that because we had the same sort of thing. And it was great because uh, what Anne did was she and her husband actually lived in Shetland when she wrote the series. So she got the accent spot on, but when they oh, took... Wonderful. The American, the the Glaswegian, and they stuck him in the role. It was just so wrong. It really, <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's fabulous There's... series. But I suppose for for you as somebody from there, so you look at it from a completely different um, 
aspect. Well, we're supposed to believe he's from Shetland, and I'm sorry, <laughs> the, the, the Glasgow the comes yeah. through, I, and you can't deny it. It's like <laughs> yeah. I literally, I, I, I looked at my mother-in-law and I went, "Can you not hear his Glasgow accent?" <laughs> I can. And she's like, no. I was like, oh dear. Oh, oh, oh. that awkward moment of where you're like, I, I'm going to go make the tea. Thing <laughs> yes. Just... It's a little bit too much. <laughs> and then she, she always makes the joke of, um, you know, when she first met me, all I talked was Shetland and I had to learn to kind of slow down and, and speak a bit more Glaswegian and a bit slower. And, um, I always laugh at her because she used to get onto me so much for saying certain Shetland words, and now she kind of misses that a little bit about me. Because she's like, "Oh, your your accent where you speak with it is so sing song," and I'm like, "This has been my accent the entire time." <laughs> I think it's a lovely accent. <laughs> I mean- I, occasionally, I do go American if I've been on with Americans, um, because I have this horrible habit of mimicking. And a lot of Shetlanders do that. We, because we travel so much, and we call it restless feet. Because like when the sun's not up as much, Shetlanders long to be in the sun. So we kind of, because the winter's so dark and so long in Shetland, that we start to itch and we kind of want to go places and kind of just pee in the sun. So you do have like the, the longer nights, so it's it's much shorter days, do you? Yeah, it doesn't get okay. dark. Yeah, which is murder if you're trying to sleep. Because you got yeah. school the next day, and <laughs> so that kind of sucks. But yeah, I mean, they, there's nights where it just does not get dark, and it's great if you're writing. Yeah, I can imagine. But it's kind of weird. Like my my husband, he was up there last year. Was it no two years ago? And he went through, and I think it was like he was going for a glass of water or something, and it was really late, and it was still daylight out almost. And he thought this was the most fascinating thing he'd seen. So he was out with his camera and he was taking pictures and he sent them to his sister. And she couldn't believe it either, just like how bright and light it was. It was, you know, so that's because um, we have celebrations around that called the Summer Dim. And um, that became a, a motorcycle rally actually up okay. there. And then we have... Um, the Shetland Folk Festival music again, that's around the summer and summer months and all the excitement to do with that. And then, you know, just to break up that long winter, we have the Uphelia season. And that's always sort of in January, February, March kind of time. Right. And every town has their own time that they do their own Uphelia. So it's like there's a Viking festival that just goes on from like January all the way through to March. Oh, wow. So it keeps the island's morale kind of boosted and, you know, and a whole of Shetland shuts down for the Larwick one. So there's no boats. There's, you know, nobody works except for emergency services, but everyone shuts down and everyone goes out and they support the squad. And it's, it's such a lovely experience. I can't do the 24 hour thing. Because you technically have to stay up for 24 hours. I could never do it. I, I will hold my hands up. I would go to the hall and I would I would last it till about 3 in the morning. And then I'd be like, no, I can't. I'm too tired. I got to go home yeah. to sleep. <laughs> so um, even as a teenager, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't hack it. So um, <laughs> Mind you, yeah. one festival, that, that's such a wonderful thing. I should think also to look forward to. And, and it's good to celebrate something like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, my birthday always fell on Opelia too. So, 
<laughs> meant that technically my birthday party was in a hall with lots of people I didn't know celebrating up Helia. Um, but you know you're going to have a big party, so I suppose it's it's good for that. Yeah, my my grandmother was always um, very good at telling everybody that uh, her granddaughter's birthday was that day, so made it more interesting than it needed to be. <laughs> I was I wanted to sit in the corner read my book, and my my grandmother had other ideas. <laughs> no, you're celebrating. <laughs> yeah, go up and dance with these young guys, and I'm like. Yeah. I remember them from school. No thanks, Nan. Um, can I go like serve soup or something? I just wasn't just wasn't one for that kind of stuff. But uh, she she ran the halls every year. How she did it, uh, I just I admire her for it. But I don't know how she did it. I she's just a crazy woman. So tell us a little bit more about um, the beekeepers' work, because that sounds really interesting and exciting. Okay, so yes, the Beekeepers' War, uh, as I said, it's in two parts. So um, there are these two friends, uh, Prue and Jean, and they're nurses, and they go to um, Dorset. They're, they're both from Jersey, and they go to Dorset as nurses, and they work in this hospital. And um, it's it's one of those family hospitals where the families give their beautiful stately home, uh, as they did back in the First World War, uh, to wounded soldiers and that sort of thing. But one of there's a very important um, uh, patient who's brought in, and that's their their youngest son Monty. The other two, the oldest sons, have been killed in the war, so he's obviously uh, extra special to them. And this um, American Air Forceman, he he was in the um, Royal Flying Corps then, but he was, and his this friend Jack Garland, and he's the hero of the book. And he comes in to to meet his friend Monty and that sort of thing, and he meets Prue, one of one of the nurses. And they fall in love, and then Jean, the other nurse, falls in love with Monty, the son, and and it's it's that story that sort of develops. There's um, something quite mysterious about Jack, and um, something dreadful happens. Of course, um, I always have something dreadful happening. Um, and and the, the second part of the book is is in the Second World War, and it's about Prue and her daughter Emma now. And it's it the second part starts with the. Um, invasion of, of the Channel Islands by the German forces. And her daughter is evacuated and goes to stay in Dorset with her Auntie Jean and Uncle Monty, their beautiful home. And they're now Lord and Lady of the Manor. And but her mother stays behind. And it, it's what happens there. And I loved writing it. This book almost wrote itself actually. Um, I've always Those wanted best, to yeah. write a book uh with, with a folly in it. I'm fascinated by follies. Um, and there's a folly in this book that plays quite a big part. And I've always loved the idea of a walled-in garden. I don't have one. I probably never will. Um, but I have a walled-in <laughs> garden in this uh, with, with this yeah. um, mysterious beekeeper chap who, who um, the daughter Emma meets um, and, and realises he's actually somebody rather more interesting than just one of the gardeners at this place. Uh, so it was it was lovely to write. I really, really enjoyed it. All my historicals um, actually do tend to, I only realise now I'm writing my my next book, they tend to have nurses in it, which I suppose, you know, there were a lot of nurses in the First World War. It's one of the things women shone to and did so incredibly well. Um, and uh, so, yes, all of them have had. so. But I find it fascinating that people, um, so in, in the Poppy Fields, uh, one of my other books for Harper Collins, um, 
that that was a time slip. And it was that was about two nurses. So it was about a nurse in the First World War and one uh, who lives now. And it, it was set around a house. The connection to them was this house yeah. in France. And uh, again, the the one the the girl in the contemporary uh, part of the book. She was from Jersey and she she was a nurse as well and suffered burnout and just had to leave her job for a while. And her father had this old farm that he'd inherited and said, look, go to France and do up this this house for me, give you something to do and get away from yourself. And she found these letters and that sort of thing. And and it was that was fabulous because you sort of I'm not a nurse. I have no nursing experience, but obviously you do as much research as you can. And one of the best yeah. uh, contacts I have from that was um, in, in the contemporary side of the book. Uh, there's this handyman who comes and helps to do up the house, but he's actually an ex-army vet, and um, he's got a prosthetic leg. And it, you know, you think, oh, am I writing this correctly? And this chap contacted me. He's a historian. He's was in the army. His uh, partner is a nurse, and they were both saying how well it was written and that sort of thing. And it's like such a relief when you hear that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. I'm glad, but obviously must have got that right. Because you can only do your best, can't you? Well, you know, when yeah, you're researching, exactly. like you with your grandma, there's only so much you know and so much research you can do. And also you can imagine what the emotions are. Um, I mean, for, for an island at war, one thing that was a help was the pandemic. Because living on an island, uh, I couldn't go anywhere. And my daughter, I've got two grown children. My son lives in Japan. And so I haven't actually seen him for three years now because of the pandemic. He's, he's coming over in a couple of months. And my daughter, she lives in London. And yeah. I obviously I can research and I can try and imagine what it must have felt like to people living there then. But what I didn't realise was the waves of sort of grief of not knowing when I'll see my children next and not yeah. knowing when I, because this is an island, this is only nine by five miles in size, you know. I mean, oh, I love yeah, living I here very much. Oh, I know. Like, so you, you do want to get away sometimes, don't you? Um, yeah, a whole of Shetland shut down, so we couldn't even island hop. We were stuck on one Yeah, we couldn't. We couldn't island. go anywhere and no one could come here. Yeah, you yep. were stuck here. And it was so strange. And we had, um, like, we had RAF planes uh, because if probably the same as you, we get our food. Uh, we grow potatoes and tomatoes and we have Jersey milk and, and butter and that sort of thing. But, it, you know, if the sea, if, if there's a storm and they stop the boats, we don't get food. And I remember saying to my husband, why is that huge plane? It was this huge RAF plane. It used to circle and then sort of come into land, but not land and then go off. He said they're doing exercises. And yep. it's because if, if you know, if there is a storm and we can't get any food, we will starve. So we have to obviously get food delivered. And, and it was there and it gave you comfort that obviously plans are in place to sort this out. Um, so although it was um, a difficult time to write because I, I you know like with everybody you, you're worried about things and your family and stuff it really helped the sense of isolation and I mean I, I didn't have the fear I didn't have German officers billeted in my home so obviously I didn't have that sort of thing but it helped the, the basic sense of stuff of missing my children not knowing when I'll see them again knowing that if something happened I couldn't really go to them or anything like that so it mm -hmm. really really helped with that um yeah so that was actually very good in that respect um so I think you know with all the research you do as as I said there's only so much you can do but you can go to your like more baser feelings of you know how would I feel about this or how would I feel exactly, about that yeah. and then 
sometimes things happen and you really think actually it's quite different to that or like with me I mean I I found that yeah because Mm. I was I was actually home in Shetland when the pandemic hit yeah so you know like we're 64 islands spread out and these other islanders couldn't get onto the mainland at all so they were having to have food delivered into the islands Mm-hmm. And we had a big RAF plane that just sat in our airport. And oh. we had, in the middle of all this, of course, Russia decides to do a flyover. Mm. So then we had British nice. Air Force planes flying up to meet them. And we're like... That must be really frightening. No, no, it happens a lot, actually. Oh, gosh. You know, I'm like... Fine. If you don't see a Russian naval vessel nearby the islands, you kind of think, huh, what are they up to? Because you get so used to seeing them. You should know where they are, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, and the thing that people forget about Shetland is they are tied to Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Russia because those were the islands that used us as a hub. So everything traded through Shetland. And even now, looking back on it, we were taught little bits of Russian in school. And that was in case Russian boats came in and we needed to help them or we needed to understand, you know, that we weren't being invaded. Um, Makes sense. You know, and we did. We had Russian boats that would pop up in the harbour and they would totally bypass the radar system, (laughs) which I never really got the point of if they could get by it. Uh, and they would just sort of show up in the the, the the town and say, hey, we're in for supplies or, you know, and a lot of the fishing boats would trade with them out at sea because ocean life, you have different rules, um, especially seamen. If you're out in the ocean, then you take care of each other, no matter what flag you belong to. And uh, my grandfather was a great believer in that, even though he did he would come in muttering about them, something awful, in his, his own little uh, Shetland way, stomp in and be like, I ran into her, you know, get the kettle on, I'm just angry. And I would just sort of laugh at him because here's this fisherman who's completely white-haired in a big blue boiler suit with a greasy, never-washed hat that he would pull off his head because my mother couldn't stand the thing. <laughs> and he would sit at the kitchen table and he would mump and he'd grump about some boat he'd ran into, you know, trying to get his mackerel or his salmon for the year. And sometimes he'd come in with these great wads of fish. I grew up on fish. All this kind of fresh fish that used to come in. And he would bring it in and the house would stink for days of nothing but fish (laughs) my mother used to actually have to hang the washing outside on the line even though it'd be like 60 mile an hour winds the stuff was drying really quick because we didn't have trees where we were so yeah it is so weird going through Shetland and not seeing trees anywhere like we have trees but they're like bushes compared to the trees on the mainland I suppose that's because of the that's such a strong winds yeah, it's the strong winds, and it's actually the salt air. Oh. Because there's because we're literally from all sides surrounded, and there's never enough daylight for the trees. It kills the trees off. 
So we've had to actually have um, special tree surgeons come up to Shetland to try and kind of limit the damage the wind does because it's insane just how much it does. Fascinating. That's not something from someone like me who doesn't come from there or know it at all. That's something that is quite fascinating, not anything I'd have ever thought of. And it's, it's weird because when you're up there and you, you cannot go anywhere on the island without seeing the ocean, it gets a bit suffocating after a while, to be fair. <laughs> no matter where you go, the freaking ocean's like a shadow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you would always get this super bitter wind that no matter how many layers you had on, it would cut straight through it and you'd just Ooh. be like, okay, today's not a nice day. And you get you used to get a lot of those days. And then of course when my husband moved up, he was he loves the cold. He adores cold weather. And he moved up and of course they had the heat wave. Hottest oh, no. weather that the Shetland had, had in like fifty or sixty years. <laughs> and he's lying there and the sweat's pouring off him because oh, all Shetland houses are all windows practically, because they want to get as much daylight as they can. And my mum's house was so good for holding the heat in that we were actually dying in the pandemic because the heat was just unbearable. And even my dad, my dad, um, when they did the lockdown, he actually stayed home because he wasn't sure if he could go to work or what the situation was with me. I was high risk, so they were trying to figure out how this was going to work. And uh, so he stayed home and even he was just, couldn't handle the heat of the house even going outside I'd never lived a day in my life in Shetland where you sat outside and there was not a lick of air it was there was not a single breeze to be had and we were just we were just melting and if and there's no air conditioning in Shetland houses either because we never had any need for that so we've all got the whole of the fans that was in Tesco's was gone on the first day. <laughs> you know? yeah, I can imagine. And we went to get one and then I'm like, should have bought one before I came up the road because <laughs> we were <laughs> melting. Uh, so we spent the first year um, up in Shetland and then we moved back to the mainland. And of course, the second year was the second worst heat wave that we'd had. And I spent that in the hospital and the AC didn't work. Oh, that's awful. So I was like, I don't, that. yeah, and I was just sort of lying in the ward thinking to myself, I can't bloody oh. believe that the heating's no, on horrible. and it's like 32 degrees outside. Oh, no, no, that's too awful. Yeah, so we had the oh, fans going. Tend to be quite warm anyway, don't they? Yeah, um, but this, these are like the super way. new hospitals, so they're supposed to have the air conditioning in it. So if it does get too warm, you can turn like the air on. Yeah, but we had like our windows open to the hilt, and there was an electric breeze coming in through the window. And I just remember saying to Ian, "I'm like, I'm a puddle, I'm a puddle." <laughs> like every day, it was just so hot; it was just unbearable. So yeah, um, but pandemic was great for me in that regard because it, I had sort of walked away just before the pandemic because I kind of become disillusioned in writing. Because I'd struggled and struggled and struggled for so many years. And I was with all these independent publishers who then started closing their doors because the market got really tight. And I kind of just went, not off it, but I was at burnout stage. Yeah. And I was like, why am I struggling to do something? 
yes, I love it. And yes, it's my life, but this doesn't make sense. So I walked away. And of course, when I walked away, I went back to working with children with disabilities, something that I'd done a lot of as a volunteer, as a teenager. And of course, what happened? Pandemic. I think it was a sign to say, hey, you're not allowed to walk away from writing. Yeah, get back there and get on with it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, that's how it felt. It really did. Yeah. And I wrote I wrote two novels and I've been yeah. sort of editing this past year, trying to get ready for getting myself back out there almost. And one of the ones that I will be trying to get back out there is that historical one. And it's not a historical romance. It's very much a historical story. Yeah. of this family and in a sense them trying to keep standards up but also to do with the war and the fact the war is ripping that away from their very fibre of their lives and sort of forcing the men folk to be in danger and, and what that could mean for these girls that are growing up in that and then of course the mum who's still trying to enforce these standards thinking this war is going to be over in a month and you know they'll go back to their everyday lives so it kind of, in a way, the pandemic helped because I had that kind of sense of, oh, it'll be over in a month. Yeah, two more months, it'll be fine. And you know that way where you keep kind of Yeah, and you just have to keep going and keep going. Yeah, yeah. it's going to end, it's going to end. You kind of start to feel like it's never going to bloody end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad I didn't know it'll go on for so long, exactly. I know, two years is a long time. It's a long time. And I, I remember my husband saying in the March, because my daughter had to cancel coming here and I had to cancel going there, um, he said, I'm sure it'll be over by Liberation Day, which is May the 9th. And yeah. I remember saying, May, May, I can't keep going like this until May. I mean, May, yeah. hello. I thought, thank heavens I didn't realise. <laughs> no, it, it'll be, my, my dad did the same thing. He said to me, he's like, oh, it'll be over by summer. Yeah. Oh, it'll be over by October. And I kept saying, I eventually said to him, would you stop saying that? Because every time you say that, they extend it. So shh. Yes, they do <laughs> tend to extend it. A friend of mine actually said, and it's, it's, it actually sort of made sense to me. She, she writes crime and she said, this is the weirdest thing. She said, it's almost like we're living in some sort of thriller. Yeah. The whole world is living in this thriller. And I thought, actually, it is quite like that. We don't know it what's is, happening. Yeah. We don't know, well, we don't know what's happening next. We don't know when it's going to end and how, how this will sort of turn out. Yeah. I They're felt like we were all living time. in a book. Yeah. And I mean, I, I actually wo- worked a little bit on a th- kind of a YA thriller, which was a new area for me because I'd never gone into that before. But the pandemic almost sparked test zone. And then I kind of stopped writing it when Ukraine happened because I felt kind of like it was a bit close to the bone. Yeah. Because it was that idea of this small town outside of Chicago. It's just sleeping. It's winter. It's all peaceful and quiet. And then they're surrounded. Their little town surrounded and then they're bombed. And they're bombed with these chemical weapons. And it's about kind of this little teenage girl who suddenly gets sucked into the science of trying to figure out how to save her town but she's also got to go out there and help rescue people and get them back to this laboratory that's been set up to help them Mm -hmm. and during this journey she finds out it's happened other places but nobody knows about it because the media blacked it out and and didn't, didn't report on it so it's kind of that it was a very good thriller to work on but at yeah. the same point, when I hit, when I saw the Ukraine thing, I just went, 
this is not a book that's going to get touched anytime soon. Yes, so just sort of the people, it's, it. it's what people can actually cope with, isn't it? I, yeah. I know when I sent the outline to my publisher for this this next book that I'm now actually working on, my next historical, um, she said, I really love the outline and everything else, she said, but she wanted me to change uh, like a couple of bits. She said, we need more light than shade. And she said, I don't think people can actually take too much darkness right now. And I thought, actually, that's true. I, I then read read a book. Uh, completely unrelated to anything and it was quite dark and I thought hmm, I actually need the lightness as well so I can see what she means by readers needing a yeah. bit more light so I've had to change certain aspects of it before I wrote it but yes I can see that yeah and it's the first book that I've actually been in process of writing and just taken and shelved it yeah which is a you huge can always come back me. to it yeah exactly and I think mm. when the war is over and things settle down again yeah then I'll take it out of the mothballs and I'll be like, okay, I'll yeah. run with it. Yeah, there's so much suffering there. It's such a terribly it's sad needless. thing. It's needless. It's so awful. And I think it's reminding a lot of Europe of the yeah. war, yeah. the, the Second World War. Because, And I think Poland particularly is having those flashbacks to that. And they're kind of living in fear of. It's a very what's frightening coming. time for people over there. Of course, living living so close, you know, to to the rest of us, it's that it's well, you think, oh, that must be so terrifying, and it's heartbreaking to to watch these things. I can't bear to watch the news most of the time, and that's yeah, the thing. But the living, way. you know, in in a country that surrounds that, I'd be terrified. Poor people. Yeah, and and that's what that's what I thought, and in. Yeah, you know there was it was something very striking because a friend of mine, she turned to me and she goes, "Well, if Ukraine falls," she said, "That's them one step closer to us." Yeah, and I was just thinking, "Ah, that's a bit too close to home in a way," yeah. you know, because yeah, I always said awesome. to to my grandfather, "I'd hate to live through a big war where everyone's involved and you're kind of you're helpless, you know, yeah. because you can't go and fight or you can't do." anything to help you're just kind of stuck waiting to see what's going to happen and uh, my father-in-law he's he's ex-service and he said that too he's like there's he didn't really see a lot of let's let's defend this country kind of attitude from our side and he was like oh they'll fall and it was so shocking to me to hear that from somebody Mm -hmm. like that when I was thinking really is that where all this has come to yeah you know so i'm 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 holding my breath with that to to see how it goes um but yeah i think i think historical is going to be something a lot of people are going to be reading because it's going to be a lot less scary than everyday yeah. life for for a little while anyway if nothing else so well, you, you know what you... actually happened don't you <laughs> so yeah you know, it, it's a and, safe place even though it might be a horrible thing you're reading that you know it happened either 100 years ago or, but you know what happened you know it's not happening yeah. now that there's a safety in already knowing the outcome I suppose there is. yeah 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 definitely so what book have you read recently that's stuck with you the most oh I, I'd have to say the seven husbands what is it has the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins I've read Reed. that yeah loved I, it I, Got it as an arc. See when it first was coming Wonderful. out. Lovely. And I read it and I, I struggled with it a little bit because it was on Kindle at the time. 
and I was having issues with my Kindle, no end at the time. And I thought it was really well done. However, I would get confused a little bit every so often <laughs> with it. I, I actually had, I, I think it does a lot of the time depend on what format you, you read something, I think, or have something. Because I yeah. actually had an audiobook and I tried about three times, maybe four times to actually listen to it. And I just could not get into it at all. And, I thought, oh. yep. and then uh, I, I read it on holiday, actually. Uh, on the plane, I read most of it. And I absolutely couldn't put it down. I loved it. So it was, yeah. I was quite surprised because I thought, I am going to try and read this because everyone goes on about how great it is. But I just couldn't get into the audio book, but I loved it. I actually loved it in paperback. Weirdly. Yeah, and it, that's the thing. I think if I had it in paperback and I wasn't sort of fighting with the Kindle and I wasn't trying yes. to make notes so that I could kind of keep up with the story almost, I would have enjoyed it more because I would have been able to take smaller chunks. With the dyslexia, sometimes that can be an issue where – yeah. You read too much and then you kind of lose where you're at because the words start playing around and you know you need to put it down, take a break or whatever. And I found screens are the worst for that for me. So I have yeah. to read things in hardback form just so that I can get through it. And I've also, I think um, they were saying that I might have this thing where I, I'm better with colors. So see oh. if a page is like, sort of yellowed from age is that Erland's I think something like that yeah. yeah my nephew has that and he had such a struggle with English and with reading and stuff like that and he yes. has now these glasses which which have it's a yellow tip there's yellow green red there's different ones I gather and they yes. tested him yellow and he said because the words were doing all this yeah. um so it was very difficult for him to actually focus on it and it made a marked difference for him yeah yeah, I just got told, oh, you've got dyslexia at a really young age. And then that was it. Like they just, they took me to extra support classes and then just forgot about me in a way. And then handed me a scribe when I had high school and said, right, get on with it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, it was almost like a fight um, back in those days just to stay in mainstream education. Because if you were. Yes, I think now they, there's sort of people understand an awful lot more. Don't yeah. They? And it is it when I went back in as an assistant for kids with disabilities, I was so surprised at how much training they were getting and how much support they were getting. But it still baffled me that they didn't understand how to work with co colleagues that were disabled. Really? How strange. Yeah, that, that totally blew my mind because I had said to them before going in, I said, look, I'm disabled and registered disabled. I said, so there's things that I won't be able to do. And it was almost like it just went clean over their heads and they hired oh, me. And I, oh, and I so thought, strange. oh, okay, they'll understand. No, they really didn't. And it was they really, you know, it, it went from being they understood and I worked really hard and then lockdown hit and I had to work from home because I was high risk. And uh, then I came back and they treated me completely different. Because I had, they had been in the school and I hadn't been able to be in the school. So it was almost like, I don't want to say jealousy that I, they, they thought I was at home doing nothing. But I was actually at home working, you know, the same hours as they were. I was just working on a computer, which yeah. was harder because, you know, you're going in and out of classes oh, yeah. and you're chasing students and you're making sure they hand in their homework and, I worked with one student 
one-on-one the entire time and then I come back and it's we've got a new set of you know pupils in because it was a new year and it yeah it was it was so awkward when I went back in and I felt so uncomfortable and it you know by the time I did get my feet back I had I'd fallen really ill and I had to go into hospital and I said look I'm going to be in hospital for three weeks and they said oh would you mind uh resigning then I didn't think you'd do that sort of thing. Yeah. Wow. So I kind of, in a way, with with this show, is I can talk about it and be like, hey, you know, a little bit more understanding if you're taking somebody on with an invisible disability that is a long-term health condition, make sure you understand that before you go down that road because there's nothing worse for somebody who's working really hard and then for you not to be able to understand that they need those maybe that time to get better they need that time to heal you know you need to kind of work and go you know work with people go back and forth with people Um, and that's another great thing for this show is authors there's so many authors that come on and they do either have dyslexia or they've got a long-term health illness or they've got long covid in some cases maybe and it kind of breaks that down a little bit and it takes that stigma away yeah and it's defunking a lot of the myths as well because i think a lot of people think oh if you're you know if you're disabled you can just go write a book and it's not like that at all you you really have to have discipline and you need to make it your lifestyle and your choice and and really work at it and i keep telling myself that almost like it's okay to want to do this for a living it's okay to want to sit and do podcasts and talk to people and it's it's such been a it's been a learning curve because I've done seventeen interviews since I started doing this. Like Sometimes it. I'm recording two or three times a day, just so that I can because everyone's got some really seriously weird schedules, and I'm just sort of trying to fit in around <laughs> everybody. And then when I do take a night off, it turns out that my <clears throat> electronic diary is not working, <laughs> and I was like, because you know, it came in saying I had nothing on, and I was like, okay, this is all right, and then I was like. Oh, when I went back, I checked and found that 30 authors had had their appointments moved. (laughs) Yeah, so I was just like, okay. So now I double check everything. It's it's, it's ridiculous. But it's been such an an adventure. I've I've really enjoyed it so far. So I I hope it keeps going. I hope so. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. So if you had time and you could just sit and read and enjoy and you didn't have those stresses of deadlines and, you know, all the lovely stuff that we have as writers, who would you sit and enjoy and why? Um, I suppose, you mean as, as in people? Well, authors or a series or something like that. Oh, um, you can have oh, an author I, I and a so, series. Well, I have so many I mean, I don't know how many, probably three or four hundred books on my Kindle. Um, <laughs> I think we're all like that, actually, now. I know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a member of the RNA, sort of Romantic Novelist Association, and every Tuesday, for example, there's um, you, you put up the hashtag Choose News and RNA yeah. Tweets, so from the RNA, and it, it's like a day where we can all promote, a, it's on Twitter, or, or, or promote yeah. a book or something. So there, there'll be about sort of 60 people doing it, and we each re, we put up one of our books and then we sort of re, retweet everybody. 
um, yeah. and maybe put a comment or whatever. And I look at every single one before I, before I treat them. And I end up buying several every single time. And I think, <laughs> I keep buying these books. And I've got, I mean, I've got such a deadline. I mean, I've got three deadlines. I'm writing three and a half books this year. And yeah. I don't know when I'm going to be reading these books. So I suppose more time to read, really, but I'm not exactly sure what because I have so many. I mean, at yeah. the moment, um, I've got three books on the go because I read a paperback in the bar. So yeah. I, I'm reading one of the Bridgeton books, the third book, an offer from a gentleman uh, by Julia Quinn at the moment in the bath. Um, I can't remember what I've got on my Kindle. And I've got another book. It's um, a woman's courage, I think it is, on on audio, and I listen to that when I'm driving or when I'm going like lying in bed, sort of trying to get my brain to go to sleep, relax a bit, all first thing in the morning. So I tend to go between three books all the time, and I, and you're I have, a lot like me in that regard. Yeah. I have a book for the bath, a book for the car, yeah. and a book for bed. <laughs> and my husband does not understand. I rotate between all three. Yeah, yeah, and, and I it's... do review. Um, I'm a member of. There's three of us, three local authors. Well, there's loads of local authors here actually. Um, yeah. But we write. We called ourselves the Blonde Plotters. We actually set up an online literary festival that did extremely well. Um, but then with the That's pandemic, we, yeah, it was called My VLF. It was actually we actually won an award at Future Books in London, um, yeah. and there was nothing like it. We interviewed. Oh, so many authors. We and we actually did um, the Big Book Weekend um, with uh, BBC Arts in twenty twenty. I mean, I think we interviewed something like three hundred and twenty authors at the same time as writing our own books. Um, And one of us also works in a senior role. Um, And by the end of the year. We we and we did six of our own festivals. We did a historical festival, a romance yep. festival, a horror festival, all different things. And we did, I think, about five other literary festivals, which was fantastic. It is what we set it up for, but we didn't actually expect to be so successful. And in mm-hmm. the end, uh, we had to do. We couldn't do everything. And yeah. for me, writing is, you know, what everything. I want to do, what I've aimed for so long, and what I love is my passion. And it is. Uh, the other two as well so we had to make a really difficult decision just to close it down which was really really hard because it worked hard to set it up um you you just can't actually do everything Um, I know I'm I'm one of these people I'm a bit like you where I've started you know I was studying and then I was um writing and then I was convalescing and now you know I'm writing studying and doing a podcast so it's like I don't know what made me think hey you know what's a good idea I've got a little bit extra time I'm going to take on a podcast like you can do this as well yeah yeah that's my horrible little habit and of course um there's so much other stuff that I do as well and you know being the fact that I started as a wrestling writer I'm so used to running around like a headless chicken that I feel like if I'm not running around like a headless chicken I'm not doing something right yeah and then Um, you know it was like the weirdest experience today I told Shane Helms who's a good friend of mine and he's a producer now for WWE but he wrestled in WWE his entire life um I said to him, I said, you're the only reason I'm doing this podcast because the first ever podcast I ever listened to was his. And his was actually a live broadcast on, um, oh gosh, it was like a Twitch kind of thing. And you could sit in the 
chat room and you could talk to him and ask questions and he would interact with everybody that was talking to him. And I got so addicted to those shows that I missed them when he wasn't doing them. Yeah. And I ended up, um, he had a, he had a kid, which it was the reason that it slowed down. And uh, I ended up deciding, well, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. And of course the podcast thing sort of kind of slowly came to life and, yeah, I just, I wouldn't, I would never have done this if he hadn't been such a driving force behind it. Oh, that's nice. And he's, he's such an inclusive person that he almost made me realize I need to do this for every author that, you know, who's either, it doesn't, has to be a bestseller. It could be a brand new author coming out. I did that yesterday. I had Lindsay Maple on, who's a brand new, fantastic author. And it's called, um, she's doing a book that's, not your average love story or something along that lines. And it's a very different comedy. It's a romantic comedy. So it's light and it's fluffy and it's easy, easy going, but it does have some steam to it. And I thought, you know, here's, here's a young woman who's a yoga instructor and does all this other stuff. She deserves that, that, you know, that podcast time. And so I started with that and then I've, I've had bestsellers on some, some I've known for a while, some of my, I haven't known. And, I'm just sort of building it around everybody. And, and I don't care what genre you write. As long as you love what you do and you love your craft, that's, yeah. that's it's the, the most passion, important thing. Isn't it? Yeah. And it's good because we get to talk about all this little crazy writing tips and stuff that we've tried or books that we're reading and we're slightly addicted to or more addicted to than maybe we should be. And, and the readers kind of get to explore, you know, realize that maybe if we write a genre, that doesn't mean that we're sitting reading it. You know, that we like an awful lot of the time people. I mean, I do love historical fiction, but I know quite a few like romantic fiction authors who who really love reading crime, but they they write the most beautiful, cozy romantic fiction. And it's like, really? (laughs) So, yeah, you do need a sort of breakthrough. I know, like with mine, by the time I've written, I mean, I love research, but the time I've written this this, uh, historical I'm writing now, I will go on to a Georgina Troy contemporary romance. And I love doing that. And it's like, having a bit of a, a break from the previous one. And then by the time yeah. I've done that, I love, I'd be yearning to go and do some research and do a historical again. So it's nice to do, you know, the two different genres. It's nice to break it up. Yeah. Like yeah. for me, if I'm running contemporary, I'll go read fantasy. Or if I'm stuck reading, writing fantasy, I'll go read a crime novel. As long as it doesn't yeah. interfere with what I'm writing. The only time that I read what I'm writing is when it's an historical that I'm working on. Um, because I've been working on a Viking story, which kind of came from Shetland, and it kind of came from the the rumors and the kind of the gossip of, well, what what happened if this was the reason an entire village vanished from the island? Because it's a a mystery they're still trying to solve. Oh, you know, fantastic. there's this village they uncovered underneath the airport, and all that they found was the remains of a a man and a wife, and the entire village just looked like it had vanished completely. Oh. No explanation, no reason. The animals were still in their stalls. There was food left in bowls. They had no idea what had made them vanish. Um, so the islanders, they were taking all these little facts and making stories about them. And and I kind of ran away with one of one of their ideas. Well, one of my, my grandparents' ideas, actually. Um, and it was good because I, I sat and I, I learned new 
history drama kind of style writers. I, I met Elizabeth Chetswick's work for the first time. I was I grew up on Catherine Cookson, so I wanted it to be a story that that's why I didn't change the language and I kept it very plain English because I wanted everybody to be able to read it. And uh, I wanted it to be a book that anyone could connect to. Um, fascinating because you've got mystery in there as well as history. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And I thought the idea of it was the last bloodline of the, the Viking, you know, princess line. And these three daughters after the queen gives birth and she passes on through child labor, then this maid who had taken care of her, this shield maiden, and protected her for all the, throughout all these years, has to take the girls and flee with them. But it's her job to protect them while they're on the run. And it's essentially them fleeing the Templars, but the whole Templar system isn't corrupt. So half of the Templars are protecting them and half of them are hunting them. And, you know, it's like going into the history of the Norwegian royal family and how all of a sudden they had these royals that... Uh, nobody knew suddenly appeared and they were like oh there this is a princess and you know she's fine and and we i just sort of thought well how awesome would that be if the the viking bloodline didn't end and they actually lived on within the netherlands and in finland and in denmark and they kind of the story of their lives kept going but it was the biggest secret ever kept and and I went with, I went for it. Um, oh, good for you. That sounds fabulous. I mean, that's what makes a really interesting book when, you know, I think that happens with, with authors, isn't it? I think, yeah. but what if this happened? And what if, uh, what if they did that instead? And yeah, fabulous. Yeah. And I mean, okay, it's not published. I, I will say that, but it, it's, it's one that I'm editing and I'm working on and hope one day it publishes. Um, but I just, I love the idea of it being, it's not the usual historical that you'd find. Yeah. Because it is literally drawn out of the history of an island that isn't really explored. And I kind of run with it. And I think what what's might be kneecapping me is the fact I haven't changed the language. I've kept it. I wanted everybody to be able to read it. So I used standard everyday language to try and keep it so that anybody of any reading language could read it and understand it. And it wouldn't get lost and I think that's where maybe some of the editors struggle because it's it is that kind of standard English so that everyone can read it, and it's not using olden day English or olden day, um, you know, terms and phrases because I didn't want to cut every audience out. So it was yeah, a historical. I have thought that that should be a problem, though. I've I've had a few rejections because of that, which I thought because was very oh, interesting, right. and. I got a couple of rejections and I stopped submitting it because to me it was a story that I'd written because I was passionate about it. It wasn't a story mm -hmm. I'd written to make money or, you know, I just wanted other people to enjoy it. But, you know, sometimes there's different ways uh, in, in my, to be published. Sorry, I didn't finish my sentence. For example, so I wrote uh, Broken Faces, which was my first historical. It's about four friends in the First World War. Um, one that one of them uh, received life-changing injuries, two guys and two women. Um, and I wrote that book because I was looking for something to read. You know, when you just yeah want to find something to read, and I actually just couldn't find exactly what I wanted. And I thought, I'm actually going to tell myself this damn story. So I did. Yeah. And I wrote this. It's quite big. I wrote this book. Um, and again, I tried and tried and tried to, to get it published. 
it was, I mean, it was actually, I entered it into the Good Housekeeping Novel Writing Competition um, and it was runner-up. So it beat 7,000, I was told it beat over 7,000 um, other people. Through that, I got my first agent. He was one of the judges. Oh, um, wow. But it, it, he didn't sell it. I think, unfortunately, Rich and Judy had two books out that were sim- similar. You know, similar sort of stories, but the two together sort of made my one, I think, Anyway, I was, yeah, I thought I'd missed my chance because I thought, you know, that was in 2012, thought 1480. No one's going to read about that afterwards. Obviously, I'm wrong. <laughs> and eventually, my husband said, why don't you just self-publish? I don't want to self-publish. I want to be published and all that. But I yep. self-published. And that's how I got my HarperCollins contract. Um, one of the publishers there actually read it. She was looking uh, to commission a historical novel to commemorate the centenary of the end of the First World War. Yeah. And she contacted me and she said, um, I don't know how you are with contract, you know, with contracts or anything. Um, this is what I'm looking for. I want to commission some try I've loved Broken Faces. And I was wondering if you'd be interested. And it literally took me less than a second to say, uh, yes. <laughs> and that was <laughs> of course. Yeah. 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 That was a poppy field. And that's a USA Today bestselling. Well, and it is literally... That book alone made the difference between yeah. me working for a living, doing a job I didn't want to do, yeah, to working full time as an author. It yep. was my dream, and I, I still write historicals for her. But yeah, it was self-publishing that book. So that yeah. book, it did. It was run up in a national competition. It got me a top top agent. I thought, oh my god, this is it now the dream yeah and it didn't work it didn't happen we parted ways and very amicably but we did and then so I self-published and I thought well I don't care I've done it I've got this out there people did like it and then she read it and and really the rest is history it's it's amazing how you just don't know so yeah you just don't know um well for me I I had a big break I had a sort of a mainstream one in England, an English publisher, and they gave me a traditional contract and it was for Marie's World. So twin sisters turning on each other and, you know, one twin publishes her twin's diaries. Oh, wow. To the world. So you can just imagine the chaos that causes. Yeah. You know, and it was the ripple effect on it. And I sold out everywhere I went. And I thought, this is it. This is it. And then the publisher said, we're not going to publish any more of it. That's and I was I was gutted because I'd gone and I'd done this book tour and it had done really well and then I and then we had to part ways with them and I went back to the indie world and I had unfortunately gotten entangled with a bad agent and I ended up with burnout and I've been doing this 13 years and I've never had a company that I've clicked in with and I thought yeah I'm going to stay here forever you know there's never been that feeling of coming home so yeah. I've always kind of been on the loop for for to do that. And I, I'm not an author that writes one genre. I don't want to be sports romance for the rest of my life. I want to be able to to write other stuff. And I, I've written a crime book and I've written with a detective out of a TV show from America, of, of all things. And I've written historical dramas and I've written all this other stuff that I want to really explore. And I don't want to be just known for the girl that wrote that wrestling book with a wrestler that kind of started off the sports romance genre. You know, it's just that kind of way that I'm edging out. You can actually, I mean, I've I've written, I've been publishing three names with three publishers. And I think 
again, again the the um, so I wrote also writers I haven't because I haven't got time now to, but I did write Azella Drummond two two thrillers, and again they didn't sell when they were with my agent, but they were picked up by Hero Books, um, and they did quite nicely. They were wonderful to write for. Um, and then I, I was also published with my Georgina Troy, my contemporary romances, uh, yeah. with, with a, a small indie publisher, uh, quite a big indie publisher, I suppose. And then eventually I got my rights back and I self-published those for a good few years, really enjoyed it. And now I've, I've sold uh, my backlist and, and, and full frontlist books with Boldwood books. So I think there's yeah. loads of different ways of doing it. I think back in the day, uh, certainly when I sort of started, you had to find an agent first and then you had to find a publisher and, you know, yep. you had to long for you, whatever, whatever. It's very different now. And I think now it can be a lot of different things. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I love the indie side of things, but I love being traditionally published and I like yeah. writing different genres. I, I think you can be a lot of a lot of different things. You can wear now. a lot of hats. Yeah, I would totally. I would definitely agree with that. Totally. So is there an author that inspired you past and present to A start writing and B who who started you reading? Um, I think I loved Julie Cooper's books when I was sort of at sixteen, seventeen, her like Prudence and Octavia and Lisa and Co. and those books. There were sort of like romances with like really gorgeous sort of heroes and stuff like that. Um, and then I discovered Jackie Collins, who I just thought was a goddess. <laughs> I loved all her books. Um, so many, really. But those were those were the two right in the beginning. Those yeah. were the two in the beginning. Um, yeah, I mean, now if I, I can't even think now because they, I just, I, I now have so many friends who are authors, and I love supporting friends and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, it's it hard though when you have like so many that's your friends many, but you they're just, so yeah. fabulous um I find a, a couple of uh one more chapter authors uh the, that I'm close to there's Glynis Peters she writes historicals fabulous yep. she's very big especially in Canada and the states um and Christy Barlow and she writes contemporary romance series oh, they're, but they're just so fabulous whole it's like a whole world um she's got the Love Heart Lane series I think it's going to yeah. go back 15 books now and wow. she's she uh I don't know if she did this map or I think this artist did this map for her of where it, it's different sort of families um so there's like Love Heart Lane which I think is a little guest has I've, I've read them so, so many over the last couple of years they're just absolutely fabulous and Star Cross Manor so there's different places and different stories with each book and there's this map and she had it done and it's she's got it on her she's got an outside studio as well writing studio yeah. and it's on the wall and it just looks so fabulous but you know that if you read you know what you're going to get when you read their books don't you that that's yeah. what's so wonderful about a favorite author you know you're going to love their book and you know what you're going to get and be thoroughly entertained I mean, another one, Terry Nixon, she writes the most incredible historical fi fiction. Absolutely amazing. Um, so, so, so many, though. So many. I must admit, when I need a good sort of kick up the butt and get writing again, I, I read Catherine. I read yeah, Catherine I love Cookson. Catherine. You can't, you can't go wrong with Catherine Cookson, can you? No, but you know she's fading away that... Unless you're British, okay? This is why I've right. discovered. Unless you're British or Australian... People don't really know her anymore, and it saddens oh, really? me. It saddened me. 
Um, so I have this little banner where I do talk about her as much as I can because I'm like, I gotta keep her alive, you know. This woman oh, got me into writing, just, and I have just to. Just fabulous. I mean, to, fabulous. to think she was dyslexic. Oh, was she? She wouldn't have thought it, no, but she was. Yeah, and she wrote, the reason that she wrote in the style she did was because of her dyslexia. So she actually wrote how she would speak. And what her experiences were from being a servant in a big house and sort of coming up that way. And it made that's what made her book so special was because she was working class and she understood the struggles of being working yeah. class and and what every penny meant to everybody in working class. And I I adored her for that. I really did. And I think at a time where in Chatland we were transitioning between the oil and the fishing so it was such a sort of spirotic period of where lots of people had money and then lots of people didn't have money and it was that kind of fluctuation she kind of made it feel level and less dramatical in a way yeah and she helped me understand the world because I was going from hospital to school hospital to school and she kind of gave me a bit of perspective on that and her her own struggles with mental health kind of tied in with mine and it made sense to me um if you ever get a chance to read hamilton by her that is an incredible book it's about a woman who's just has no control over her life and she's so miserable that she creates this horse that this comical horse that just appears and it gets her through these awful awful times and I can't think of like who would come across something like that other than her, and it just worked so well. And it yeah, totally was yeah, not what I thought I was getting into when I read speak it. Speak to people through that, yeah, yeah. And it just she wrote that when she was going through her worst time, and I thought to myself, you know, that that's such an incredible thing. And she got three books out of it. You know that that whole idea, three three novels. It was incredible, um, and I read them. And I, funnily enough, I read them while I lived in Hamilton in Scotland. So it kind of felt really strange a little bit because here's this horse called Hamilton and I'm actually living in a place called Hamilton. It's like, but yeah, she taught me so much and she taught me so much about writing and you were guaranteed if you got a book from her, it was a professional story. Even her short stories were done so well. Um, So she's my kick up, kick up the butt book. I always say. That's so nice. Yeah, it's lovely I need, to have I need a, a go-to book, going. isn't it? Or yeah, author. it's good. It's, 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 it's interesting. So what genre do you feel drawn to when you visit bookstores or you're looking at books online? Uh, always historical fiction. I'll always go to that first. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I love down. history. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. It's, 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 it's such an easy place to go to. Has there ever been a book that you've picked up and you just were like... Why did I start this? I, I've just gone through this myself. I, I had picked up a science fiction from my university course. I have not a clue what it was about. I still don't understand it. And I've read, you know, my teacher's um, notes on chapters and stuff to try and understand it. And I, I have not a clue. <laughs> not a clue. And I was like, why did I start this? Because I, I, I'm not mathematical minded. And it was a very social, social political book, and that's totally out of my wheelhouse. 
so yeah, I I I I kind of asked this question because I'm interested to see if there is people that have done that kind of thing like me, where you've either been studying or you've done it for for whatever reason, it's book club or something, and you've picked it up and you've read it, and then you're like, oh, I have no idea what any of this means. Uh, no, not really. Um, I could, there must be. There absolutely must be, but I just couldn't think of one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't go to university, so I don't have that sort of. I know some of the things my children studied. And you think, why would anyone? Why would anyone put that on the the prospectus? The because that sounds yeah. so incredibly dull. I mean, I know for yeah. a lot of they're now GCSEs, aren't they? But in yeah. my day, it was levels. Mine were fine, but I know with my children, uh, when they were at school, you think, you know, I'm not surprised a lot of kids don't want to read because the things they are introduced to at school are either really sad or quite horrible or very, very dull. I know my son didn't read for years and then he went traveling some with a friend and he picked up or his friend suggested he pick, he read Father Lamb by Robert Harris and he loved it and discovered that actually books don't have to be boring. And yes. he's been an avid reader ever since. I mean, he is an avid reader. If he's not reading, he's um, you know, he's listening to audio, but he actually uh, teaches English to, to Japanese children now in Japan. Um, yeah. And he just cannot get enough of books. But for years, I couldn't get him to pick up a book because yeah. what he'd been given, you know, at school, it was like, why would you even want, I wouldn't want to read that. You know, and, and I know they, like, yeah, supposed to be, you know, I don't know, some form of interest sparked and there wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did um, Thomas Harding, Far From the Madding Cried, was my first book. And of course. Mine was Mayor of Castlebridge. Yeah. But I was lucky, actually, because it was also a series on TV at the time. So I sort of. It helped me get a bit of understanding of the book I was reading because of what how they were. I acting. wish I'd done yeah. that instead of yeah. trying to struggle it through. It really, really yes. helped, and I actually did enjoy it. But I think without that, I probably wouldn't have quite grasped different sort of nuances and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and it was like um, there was one that was set in New York about high society. And I must admit that one was, it started off really good, and then I kind of like hit a brick wall with it. And I thought, holy you know, because it was like every book we read for the first four months was about domestic abuse. Oh, really? Point. Yeah. And I was like, trigger warnings, please. You know, because they gave us, a, I think it was Othello was one of them. And it's so brutal. Is it? And I was like, seriously? And then we were given one that it was um, Ali Smith's The Hotel World. Which was, again, another really, really confusing book because it was jumping perspectives all the time. So one minute, you know, one chapter, you would just get used to this character and then you'd be in the next character and then the next character. And you had to kind of understand that all this was tied to a hotel, which you don't really figure out till you get to the very end. And then you're like, oh, okay. But yeah, there was was quite a few this, um, this course that I just... Could not wrap my head around. I'm about to go into The Tempest. It's my final book for this this course. And I'm just, in a way, I'm dreading it a little bit. But then I know I'm okay with William Shakespeare. Yeah. 
because I was an actress growing up as a child. I was a child actor in the local theatre group and I had um, directors that were slightly insanely hooked on sort of William Shakespeare. So I did Midsummer's Night's Dream and I was in the bag pipe, uh, Pied Piper and all these other sort of weird and wonderful plays that I didn't always understand. But the great thing about it was we broke it down as we were learning yes. it. And you so get a different understanding of it, it when you're watching somebody else play that part, I think, as well. Yeah, and it was good because I, I learned to understand him a bit better. And also my best friend, she did that as an HND. Um, so when I get really stuck, I even phone her and go, oh, <clears throat> best pal, really need help on this one. <laughs> and oh. She kind of comes over and she goes, right, what are you not getting? And then I kind of just sort of try and fill in the blanks as I go and sort of say hey this is where I get stuck and it's that kind of camaraderie sometimes with her that gets me yeah. it's getting me through this course sometimes sometimes you just actually need somebody to sort of explain it then it's like oh of course yeah like yeah and then you're like a different angle or something yeah and then you're like why didn't I think of that yeah yeah I, I have that moment quite frequently so going into writing um into the portion of the, the writing kind of elements what was what do you do to sort of prepare yourself to kind of dig into your deeper characters or your darker characters, the ones that kind of get in the way of the love stories and, you know, make the story happen? I think, well, how I, I always start with um, with my books is I do um, probably usually about sort of four or five pages long, like an outline. So I'll have the log line, then I'll have, basic sort of very short premise and then I'll have you know the characters and I sort of that's how I sort of work it out first um and I know that I'll obviously want the light and the shade within the book so you obviously want uh the people that people would like and then the people probably they won't like or you know the protagonist the antagonist or whatever and yes and, and slowly sort of build it up from there um I usually know I usually think I know, I should say, um, what every, who everybody's going to be and, and, and what part they're going to play. But even like today, I was writing a scene and I suddenly thought, oh, that there was this one character that was actually connected to another character. No, you know, you get these light bulb moments and you think, yep, that is perfect. That will make that a deeper level to that. And, and it slowly built almost like a sort of jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? You slowly sort of build up. And yeah. as long as you have your internal and your external conflict throughout there and the characters sort of grow and have their own character arc and, and you do have the light and shade. I love writing. I love writing the sort of um, badder character, you know, the hard, the nasty ones, probably, I should say. Yeah, um, I do that, too. I, I do like that. Yeah, and they're, they're fun to write, aren't they? I like to be organized too. I'm a bit like you. I break every book down chapter by chapter by chapter. So I know where I'm going. Yeah. Um, it's only when Hubby went and hid in my notebook that had like 26 novels and it already pre-broke down and he can't yeah. find it and I can't find it. Yeah, that's the only time when I'm like, Ugh, yeah. So I'm I'm kind of having to reconstruct, you know, if it's one that somebody asks for and then I'm trying to reconstruct it really quickly to try and remember what the story was. And luckily, because I haven't written it, I've just broken it down. It stays in my head. Yeah. So I can reaccess it. But once it's finished and I write the last page, my problem is my brain deletes it. 
So then I have to sit and I have to read it for the first time as a reader and go through it as a reader, which is in some respects hilarious. No, but I, I do that. I remember being interviewed. Um, I had a book, but I've already moved on to the next book. Well, for example, the book that's coming out in May, I've already written the next book in the series. Yes. Um, and I've written another book that's in a totally different genre. And I know I'll have done different like structural edits or whatever for the for the different ones. Uh, yes. I remember one book came out a few years ago and somebody introduced us. So tell us about your hero. So what's her, your heroine? What's her name? I had no idea at all. I had no idea what her name was. I had no idea what what she did. Literally completely gone from my mind. And this yep. thing had she just come out like two weeks before. So I have no yep. idea. How can you not remember this book? Because I've moved on many times since then. It's, because it's, we're always moving forward. And I think when yeah. media does this, it, you know, these, these interviews with us, they forget that we're maybe four or five books away from where we were. <laughs> See, um, who is that? And I always have to think, oh, gosh, no. I always that? have yeah. to look at my notes. Yes, always. That's what I do. Like, bless my husband's socks. He took me, I can't drive. So my husband decided to drive me on my book tour and we were going to stay at hotels on this book tour. And I felt so bad for him because I'm dyslexic. I have to practice pieces that I'm going to yeah. read aloud because otherwise I'd miss words, right? So I must have read him the entire novel from when we left Glasgow till we went round all the different bookshops and got back to Scotland. And he was like, <laughs> I could do your interviews. I know your book better than you do. And it's so true. He actually did. And, you know, when I couldn't answer a question, he would be mouthing the answers to me. Yes. And then you find like you'll sort of say, oh, I thought this character, what do you think about this? And, and you have, yeah. I, I have with my poor husband, various sort of like conversations and you'll say about something, say, no, but I thought it was this. And was it? Oh, yes, it was. You know, I completely yep. forgot. <laughs> or, or mine goes, um, see if I'm writing a particular thing and I get stuck a lot, I will run the idea by him. Yeah. And I use him as a sounding board. And I think that's maybe why he prefers driving buses to, to being at home with me because it's like... Escape. Yeah, because he's like, oh my gosh, you know, general public's better than when you're writing sometimes, you know, because he gets kind of that he knows it so well that he's almost like reliving it constantly oh man and especially if there's media <laughs> going on he's like <laughs> yeah and he's like yeah he and I made the mistake of letting him read one of my novels um and it was my fantasy novel and he literally turned to me and he goes you could have deleted the first 150 pages Charming. those weren't exciting enough <laughs> and I was like Okay, then. <laughs> um, not sure how to take that. <laughs> but I that was... You had that with somebody with um, broken faces before it was published. Uh, I met I had yeah. a one with an agent. And he said, you do realise that the first two chapters, you could say in a sentence, you just don't need them, just delete them. And I was horrified. Yeah. Um, but when yeah. I read it again, I thought, you know, he's right. And I ended up deleting the first two chapters and every single thing pretty much covered it in a short sentence. And I thought, oh, my God, that was, a, that was quite a, 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 an awakening, a awakening for me, that. Yeah. yeah, it is. But he, he's, t he's, t he's one of the few people that will sit there and ask me why. 
And he's a great believer in you should be able to answer the question why to everything. Like, why do you pick roses as our favorite flower? Why does she have a cat called Samuel or what? You know, whatever it is. And it's I good think, though because it makes you think on a deeper level, doesn't yeah. it? And that's that's how I trained as a, a wrestling writer, which makes everyone kind of scrunch their head up and go, "You're five foot one. You're you're a wrestling writer." And because what people don't realize is wrestlers need writers to give them the storylines that they go out and then perform. And you you're not only convinced you're not you're not just having to get in their head and understand their character, but you're writing sometimes off the back of other people's writing and you're kind of trying to keep it going. You're also trying to convince this six foot three gigantic thing of a man that this is the right move for him and he's going to enjoy this character and he's going to enjoy whatever it is you've created because it's going to be worthwhile. I've never even heard of that before. No, and it's not easy. Um, and of course, what people don't realize, and I've discussed this quite a lot on this podcast, is wrestling is a very male-dominated world backstage. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't think a woman should be backstage at wrestling. Mm-hmm. So when I turned up from my first ever writing stint, I got asked to go get beer or I got asked to what I was doing there. I got asked if I was one of the girls that was uh, interested in, you know, being in relationships with them and I'm like no I'm here to write and then I got a lot of funny looks as if to say why is there a woman writing our our storylines backstage and incredible I even got asked would you uh would you be pretend to be my crazy girlfriend who's discovered I've got a girl in my room because he couldn't get rid of the girl from the night before wow. and of course I did that as a favor to him but it was shocking to me that they didn't take me seriously as a writer because I was female. And that's still a culture that's very much alive and kicking in wrestling in the bigger companies. And I'm kind of, that's another reason that this show is really important is because I'm kind of almost saying, Hey, I studied under Vince Russo. I know you guys are mostly male dominated. Let's change that. Let's, let's keep changing things. Let's keep breaking down these glass ceilings. Um, I will probably get a lot of stick when this podcast does start dropping because <laughs> people are going to be like, hey, stop calling us on this. Well, I'll stop calling you on it when you stop doing it. Yeah. You know, it's it's sometimes you need somebody that's not really scared to sort of stand up and say, hey. And I walked away from wrestling writing for that reason. And I started writing books and I, I kind of almost took the mayhem that I lived backstage and I put it in Marie's world. And that's what everyone connected to was the mayhem of the characters. Yeah. And that they're so multi-layered and so deep because I had to be able to answer the questions of why. Yeah. So that I could be comfortable with putting it out. And even now, once I've written a book, I I look at it and I say, okay, well, why am I doing that? Why is she doing that? Why is so I can answer it if a if a fan asks me or a wrestler asks me or you know, whoever it is down the line. Um but yeah, that was probably the best education I ever got. I also got a really good education in how to communicate with people that were like three times the size of me and could squash me with their hand. <laughs> <clears throat> I got nicknamed the Spitfire because I was really quick with my words, but I was also really good at ducking and running. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, mental note to girls, do not wear high heels backstage. No, not if you want to be able to run. Um so, you know, I learned all these sort of tricks and stuff. And 
I'm very grateful for that because I look back on it and I think I was I went into novel writing with deep point of view from the word go and I've held on to that with like an iron tight fist because I know that's what my readers really appreciate even if I don't have a huge audience base I have a little audience base and those the ones that do buy it every single one of them matters to me so I, I try to keep true to them at least I try um is there a like see when you came into romance writing was there what made you decide that that was the genre you were going to put your voice to? I think I've just always loved reading reading romance. I, I think I just have. I think it's the sort of, um, for example, when you, I used to always love uh, every time Katie Ford had a book out or Christi, Christina Jones or Jill Mansell had books out. You know, it's like, you know, it's like a comfort blanket. You know that you're going to have gorgeous heroes and you know tough heroines and you know you know that it'll all be right in the end and it's like a sort of comfort thing it's entertaining it makes you laugh it makes you cry but you know there's nothing to worry about you know ultimately it will all be all right and I think you know when you go through sort of um difficult times sort of growing up um my teenage years you know family breakdowns and stuff like that um, course, yeah. You know, there's different sort of times. And again, later with my own divorce, I, I got divorced, my children very small. So it's nice to have those places to escape to where, you know, everything's, you know, there might be, there's obviously going to be conflict and drama and that sort of thing. You want that, but it will be all right and it will be comfortable and it'll, you know, it's lovely. It gives you hope as well why... that things will work out in your own life too, I think. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, I think that's a really good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. I think sometimes we just need that sort of thing. And, and I know it yeah. certainly helped me. It is the perfect escape, really, isn't it? A bit of It really there. is. Mm-hmm. So when you write, is it like a movie in your head or is it a jigsaw puzzle that you're putting the pieces together? It's a little bit of both. I mean, when I put it together, when I do my outline and originally sort of set it up, it's much more like a jigsaw. But when I write, um, there will be those times, like I said, where something will occur to me and I'll think, oh, that's wrong or I must put those together or something but when I'm actually typing when I'm in the zone I actually don't hear anything or see anything I I see it like a movie unfolding in front of my eyes I'm not even aware what my hands are even doing um and I just love that I remember my husband used to work nights he was a taxi driver and he said he'd come back to the house I only had one dog then and the entire house would be in darkness and as he sort of came close to the house, there would be one bit of light and it would have been my laptop. You see the light yeah. through the windows, my laptop. And because I had no idea that it was pitch black outside, no yeah. lights were on. I had no idea what was going on because I was completely in this world. And I absolutely love that. I think we're very lucky yeah. as authors to be able to just go into this imaginary world like that's fantastic and live in it for a while, you know. So to me, it's I know, a bit like I know a, for yeah, me, lovely. yeah. I, I know for me, like when I'm in hospital, it's my perfect escape. Such an except escape. For when, yeah, yeah it's, except for when they stick the tubes in my arms and make it impossible for me to reach the keyboard. And then I get all frustrated and grumpy. Um, but yeah, like I spent three weeks where I, I literally didn't sleep for more than an hour, maybe two hours a night. Because um, the stuff they were giving me just kept me awake. It was the painkillers. Oh, it must be so exhausting. It was, it really was. And it's so draining mentally because 
I'm going to sleep hot and then I'm waking up drenched. Then I have to get out the bed. Then they changed the bed because I've sweated through everything. And then they have to get changed myself. And then there was, they were putting me back in. And writing was like my escape because I'm lying in an ICU ward or I'm lying in HDU. However, I wish HDU had given me my blinking glasses back. I had glasses in a plastic bag and I kept making the, because I couldn't speak at the time. And I was like making the sign for glasses <laughs> because they had my glasses in a bag, but they're, they're asking me to write to them. But I couldn't see where the pad of paper it was. <laughs> so I was trying to write and not kind of see. And and I was I, I was like going, give me my glasses like in. So I can see, and I, I had would, all. The... Would you while you're sort of in the hospital like that? Because I can't imagine that you're supposed to be trying to get better and you can't sleep. That this that doesn't quite. You've got to do something. Together, you know, you have to. And I think my room roommate played a couple of times that she'd be wake. She would wake up suddenly in the night and she could just hear rattle, 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 type, 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 rattle, 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 and that was me going like ten to the dozen, and I would have to be watching, you know where my tube was and where my monitors and what stuff was and not moving too much because I would set everything off and then the nurse would come running in and she would yell at me and you know that would wake up my roommate who would be like not and happy just thinking this and I had this word count I have to reach <laughs> and I did I did I wrote a hundred thousand words in three weeks no I did not way. sleep oh my god that is incredible I have no idea if it's any good because I sent it to the I sent it to my editor and then she asked me to extend the deadline twice. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's a good thing. Well, that, um, is, that is absolutely fantastic. And talk about making the most of, of you know a yeah. difficult situation. You have to, and I mean mm. that's the thing with with um, idiopathic rheumatoid arthritis. No, I'm not calling myself an idiot. I know when people hear that for the first time, they go, did she just say idiot? No, idiopathic, which it means that it's it's a, like a disease that's evolved with me throughout my life. So it's always affected by my immune system. And the worst thing for me is I've had it since I was two and a half years old, but it goes for everything in my body. So it could be a bone, it could go for it, it could be the lining of my cartilage or the cartilage or tissue or muscle or and what whatever. does it just inflame that part does it yeah and it it eats bone that's another thing it likes to do is chew on bone so I shattered my jaw joints and I had no idea that wasn't fun I literally yawned and my husband was sitting maybe three or four feet from me and he heard it and he said it sounded like glass breaking oh god and all I did was yawn wow and it started six, no, it'll be eight years of hell now because I've had sepsis and I've had, you know, osteosynthesis to try and, you know, stop them from having to replace the joints, but they had to anyway. So I've had two joint replacements. And of course, every time they do a joint replacement, you get a facelift <laughs> for free. <laughs> it's just part and parcel of it. So, but this last time, um, I had had complications. So I spent sort of what was supposed to be a week and then go get married wasn't a week it was three weeks and my wedding had to get postponed oh. but I took the sort of humor in it and I had psychiatric support I was really lucky in, in the ward they they gave me support and I had my husband and I had my mom and my dad who were down from Shetland at the time and 
you know, it's also we've got COVID going on. So I really didn't think they were letting anybody in to see me, but they understood that I needed Ian because I suffer from PTSD anyway. So I'm not only writing, but I'm trying to ignore the fact I've got PTSD episodes happening because I'm stuck in a hospital and I can't talk to anybody. And I've only got a, a bloody note, you know, a whiteboard and pen, which really was not a form of communication. No. And, you know, you're just sort of trapped there. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'll write. And, you know, when I can't write, because they stuck a chest drain in, I was like, I can watch stuff. And I, I did. I watched Carnival by, um, that was the one with John, uh, Orlando Cruz, I think his name is, and some other really famous actress. And it's like a fairy tale steampunk crime thriller. And it was really odd and different. It's on Amazon Prime and it's very, very different. And I watched that and then I, I watched the Chicago Fire and Chicago PD and Med, which was a little bit brutal than I thought it was going to be. But I enjoyed it because yeah. it it took me away from, oh, I can't, you know, I can't go for a pee without dragging like four or five things with me. And I'm not really allowed out of bed or they complain at me. So how am I going to do this exactly? And it was that way you couldn't even lie comfortably in bed because you were so hot. The sweat was like sticking you to the bed all the time. So you were constantly trying to like move so that you weren't stuck. And it, oh, it was very uncomfortable. And writing to me was that escape, that door that I could. And I think that's why I had an autumn setting for that for that book because it was so hot in the bloody hospital I just wanted I wanted spice pumpkin lattes and the cool breeze of autumn with the leaves yeah. falling and just that nice imagery rather than lying in a hot stuffy room desperate for the fan to reach me but oh. not reach me at the same time no absolutely not surprising yeah. at all no but it, it, it's it's amazing what you can write though so which character for you has stayed the longest or the most? Um, I don't know because I, I I suppose I always sort of love one each book. I mean, I think from my um, my Georgina Troy books, I suppose I, I love uh, Luke Thornton. He's the first character. He was in the first book I wrote, to Jersey Kiss. That's my first book of my first series. Yes. Um, he was just so lovely. I just loved to the probably because that's the one I rewrote I don't know how many times I just knew him so well and then there's another one uh lots of people love it's it's the best um it's done best out of all my books I've now got eight eight books out two two series uh as Georgina Troy and that was Winter Whimsy that was a different series that's um the boardwalk by the sea series and that was Oliver Whimsy he was a, a really lovely character and then I suppose Hans from an iron war. He was a German officer who was billeted in uh, Estelle Lemaitre's home, the, the girl yeah. of, of the book. And I, I was very aware writing this um, because it was very difficult for young girls. On the island, you have these handsome guys coming in, but they are the enemy. So obviously, yeah. you know, you don't want your daughter or, or whatever to get involved with them obviously those sorts yes. of things did happen but it was very much frowned upon and I didn't want to sort of write that so it was a very difficult one because it was a romance so obviously you want some connection with them but I had to be very careful how I did it um, but I did love Hans and I had one friend bless her I've had 
I actually had to write an epilogue, which was actually, which was thankfully put in the book before it went to print, uh, because yeah. I'd, it had only been out a few days. And people just needed to know what happened to Hans uh, yes. after the war. And the book ended at the war. So I had to do an epilogue and my publisher very kindly actually added it to it. Yes. Um, so early, early reviews sort of say, oh, the ending, I didn't, I wasn't happy with the ending. So anyway, that changed, but the reviews are obviously still there, the very early ones. Um, and I had one friend literally phone me up. At, well, she, she actually was on Facebook, uh, the chat thing, so I could see her face and her, she yeah. was sobbing and she said, oh my God, I love Hans so much. And what happened to, and I literally, I get emails from people about Hans. So he was lovely. I did love him myself. So I suppose him really. And then the next one would be Jack from the Beekeeper's War. I did love Jack Garland. I, 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 I it's all the men that I'm loving, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but then that's yeah, a good thing. But no, I love them too. But I think there's always there's always a part of well, there is with me. There's always a part of me in in all my uh, main female character. You know, my heroine yes. of each book, my protagonist. There's always a part of me in there somewhere. Um, so I suppose with each one, I sort of do fall in love with the hero myself. <laughs> So uh, Katie Ford, actually, I remember, I think it was Katie Ford said at a talk once, she said, you know, romantic novelists don't need to go out and have affairs because they actually have them in their head all the time with their characters. That so, is you know, so they're true, fine. yes. <laughs> so yeah, I don't that need is to so go out and do true. it myself, yeah. Um, is there a character that you wish you could write more about? I think um, probably Hands from Nine War, yes. I've had uh, so many... Uh, emails uh, from readers saying they would love to know what happened later on and and what I write following yeah. book, follow follow up books say maybe about 15 years later that yes. I haven't got a plan to do that and my with my publishers there's no plan to do that maybe at some point in the future I will um I think I think everyone you know with the fact that everyone adores them so much and you adore them so much yeah and I do and like, I know exactly it's a good what way to end my it. head yeah um, I mean, yeah. I've even had people email me saying, I think this, that and the other happens. Can you please tell me that's the case? And I said, we'll go back and say, well, yes, or pretty much it's this, that and the other. And I think yeah. the other one, Florence Boot, I wrote my, um, again, I was commissioned to write the, uh, the Mrs. Boot series for, for HarperCollins, one more chapter. And she was a Jersey lady, um, but fell in love with Jessie Boots, who was 13 years older than her. And of course, the lady behind Boots, the chemist. And yes. She was, I thought I knew about her because over here they were, they were great philanthropists and we've got the most amazing Coronation Park, which is open to the public. Uh, after Jesse died, she had, uh, it's St. Matthew's Church, we know it's the Glass Church, uh, completely yeah. renovated and brought René Lalique, uh, for, you know, Lalique Crystal over and the windows are Lalique Crystal, the font is, the, there's these huge angels above the altar. It's absolutely incredible inside this church. If anyone actually does come to Jersey, they must see it. And the most amazing thing is when the island was occupied during the war, um, it wasn't damaged. Nothing was damaged. Wow. I was amazed. Yeah. I've, I've, I love Lalique, and I was amazed in the 80s. I, I knew there was this place. I mean, I live here, for heaven's sake. But when I went yeah. there and realised Every window, every glass panel in the doors, every door handle, everything is made out of Lalique crystal. It is absolutely staggering. And they yes. they gave masonettes and we've got FB fields where lots of the school children do sports and that sort of thing. So they gave so much back to the island. Um, she was an incredible character. So 
researching her was amazing and I did her three books. So the first book was solely set in Jersey there where they met and fell in love and it was it was their yeah. falling in love. The second book was her young family. They are now in Nottingham and as the children grow up. And the third book was set during the First World War. I'm obviously very comfortable writing um, about the First World War and the Second World War, but specifically yeah. the First World War in this case. And some people were... Um, they were the main, obviously, the family characters that were real characters. Yes. Then I had fictional characters, the secondary characters. And yeah. I met her great-granddaughter, a lovely lady, and through her met her daughter and yes. I think her nephew and, and also her daughter's daughter. And she showed me private, you know, family uh, photographs and stories. And I, I wow. heard so much, yeah. I put much greater sense, a rounded sense of Florence Boot from from this wonderful lady. And I just absolutely loved it. I'm actually going over to Nottingham to talk, uh, I think it's National Book Week uh, in June, uh, to talk yeah. about Florence Boot. I've been invited over to, to do a talk and I'm looking forward to that because I love talking about Florence Boot. And I was actually invited um, to go to the Boots Archive in Nottingham uh, before I wrote the first book. And... I was in this room with this most um, so so many photos, and she used to give these silk scrolls to her her girls. She called them at Christmas with a, with a beautiful sort of um, saying on it or something something inspiring. And, and this enormous book with everybody's names in that they gave her as a big thank you. She used to take all all her girls and her staff out, you know, for tours and things like that. She made sure they all had. Yeah breakfast like cocoa in the morning she was an incredible lady and it was just so fascinating to see these things and touch these things that she actually had touched herself remarkable lady yeah so I also get asked a lot will there be a fourth book I, I've certainly got uh everything for a fourth book but at the moment there's no yeah. plan for that so that's just a oh. trilogy at the moment yeah yeah but it was you know you never know that's what I see. You never. Oh, you never know. That never I always know. could do. Yes, I absolutely always could do. And I think my dream would actually be to have that, uh, the Mrs. Boot series, made into some TV series or something like that. Because I think it would be fabulous. Uh, somebody has character. just signed. Um, I signed my first ever screenplay and my TV series, and it was just just through a shopping agreement, but it felt huge. Yeah, I almost sort of warn writers against it because you kind of get excited and you think, oh my God, it's going to get made, it's going to get made. And it's, you know, we think that writing books is a long process. Entertainment world is so much more complicated. In fact, if you um, if you follow this podcast um, a couple of weeks from now, or a couple of weeks from when yours comes out, I will actually have um, the creative head of Magnetic Box Films, who I actually signed with, uh, Sean Flanagan on who's actually become quite a, quite a dear friend of mine in uh, New York and he his job is to make films and he you know he loves horror and he loves crime and he loves all these thrillers and stuff and then he comes and he meets me over christmas and it's like hi i want to do a, a romance drama with wrestlers and dancers and really sort of thrilling storylines and he just sort of was like oh <laughs> uh let me read it and then I'll get you know and I thought he oh he's gonna email me back and say no and you know I also had a rom-com which I signed with him and actually no he was one of the first people that just sort of went 
there's you've really got something here. Let's 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 chase after this. Um, and we've worked together since Christmas, and we just keep plugging away at it. But it, oh, it's such a long journey to. And I I wrote the screenplay myself, and um, I wrote this. You know, both of them. I wrote the pilot for the series, TV series, and I wrote the the screenplay for the feature. And it's such a different style of writing mm, entirely yeah. it's such an alien world because you don't get description you get a line just yeah. one that you can say you know she's doing this or she's wearing that and but they they don't like you describing your characters because they have this kind of you know they like it to be bland so that the director can come in and he, you know whoever he sees is kind of how he wants to take it um and that just felt so weird to me. And I adapted it from a novel and a, a novel that I've rewritten since then. And I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that it gets picked up by Wild Rose Press. And it's, again, it's a fun, lighthearted rom-com with a girl who wakes up and she's married her best friend. But it's her brother's best friend. Oh. And he didn't want her to marry a wrestler but her marriage actually impacts the rest of her group of friends. So oh, it's a wow. ripple out effect. Yeah. And it's like, it, it has that knock on effect. And then we signed obviously Marie's world, which is the TV series that we, we agreed on. And again, that was, I had to kind of break it down because it was so layered. So you've got Marie who's fleeing the fact that, you know, her sister's done this awful thing to her. But you also have to get that guilt across that she carries, that she's not talking to her sister, that she's not there to protect her sister, that she's depending on this half-sister who she doesn't really know to take care of her twin sister. And of course, she's not going to because, you know, twins never do. Twins are always there for each other. And uh, she kind of goes back to wrestling to protect her sister. But she almost has to forgive her sister first before she can do it. And it's kind of the, you know, the fact her strange husband finds her, and and you know what? Why why are they estranged? Kind of gets brought up quite a bit, and then you also have the question: Is she having an affair with his brother? So there, there's that kind of going on, and now she's got a new boyfriend. So how does he fit in it now? And that was getting that condensed into sixty minutes was just so difficult. Don't even but, know how you would even do that. But I have to kind of think on it as the first book will be a season. Yeah. Rather oh, than I just see. one. Yeah. yeah, you have to kind of almost look at it completely different in that mm. that regard. So what techniques have, have you found helpful and what ones do you wish that you hadn't tried? Um, uh, let me think. So techniques. Um, well, I think the, the thing is not good for me to try so much is just by coming up with a quick idea and just writing. That doesn't work for me quite so much. Um, I'm much better we call if it, I do yeah. an outline because I now know uh, that I will do the first 30,000 words like I think an awful lot of people do, you know, that, uh, a so what is it, saggy middle. Um, and then you get to yep. think, uh, where was I going with this? So, and I don't know and that sort of thing. So for me, I know what works best is to do an outline um, and I will do, you know, the the sort of backstory, then the beginning, the sort of middle with all the different conflicts, uh, yeah, why it's not working, and then you know the end, the sort of resolution stuff like that. So I have that quite detailed. 
so that when I am thinking, sorry, who are these people and why am I doing this? You know, I hate everything about this. I actually go back and think, oh, no, actually, I was going this way. Yes. And and I sort of yeah. just spark up again with it. Um, the second sort of, that's my first draft. I sort of then get it down. And the second draft, I then go through and I do more layers because I know my characters better. I put in more emotion. Um, yeah, it just put the li- little different layers in this, the second draft. And then I'll sort of send it off to my editor and hope for the best. Well, now we're going into your life. This is the next part of the podcast, which is a lot of fun because it's about getting to know us as people rather than these mythical beings that live in big houses and have servants and doesn't do the washing and has no idea how to cook or whatever. So this is a great part. And I I love this part because it really kind of demythifies us a little bit. So what's the first thing you do when you want to de-stress from writing and editing at the end of the day? I suppose, well, the first thing I do is I walk my dogs. I've got three rescue dogs. Um, So they're all three very different characters, one of whom has got an operation on Thursday. (laughs) Um, Oh, no. Oh, yes. It's um, it's a a cruciate ligament. I, I... one actually damaged his slowly wore down and he had an operation last year. And it's between eight and 10 weeks of really good care yeah. and they have to be lifted out, lifted. It's, it's not going to be fun. Then no. this second one who I've got having an operation on Thursday, he ran up the stairs to shout at the postman out the window or something. And he literally yes. snapped his leg and because they're oh, rescue no. dogs, they didn't have good feeding, you know, when they were very young. He's an old street dog yeah. this one. Um, and snapped his cruciate ligament he did so that was a bit of a nightmare Um, yes I can imagine and he has unfortunately damaged the other one so we had two last year and now he's uh, he's done it again not as badly this time and I do know what I'm in for but unfortunately I know what I'm in for you know when yeah um, it's that way where you yeah one of them not to know what you're in for yeah yeah. not deal with it but I know it's gonna be a long haul um yeah so with them uh we've got two beaches near us and so I and then Le Lond, which is a lovely headland. Um, yeah. So tend to walk them every day on that. That's sort of a great distressor for me. And I also I watch a lot of series and stuff. I watch TV. I love TV. So I tend yeah. to sort of not finish um, till about sort of seven ish, something like that. And then I'll well, yeah. I, I feed the walk the dogs, and then I'll come back and I'll probably write a bit more. But then I'll watch TV. Uh, just something on yeah. TV, um, like I think Pieces of Her I loved. I watched that recently. I love series. Yes. Uh, Bridgerton, of course. Um, everyone Viking, does, yep. Everyone does. Viking Valhalla, I love that. Um, yeah. And The Last Kingdom, I love that. So series, really, um, because I think you can I, watch funny, it not yeah. too much. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone's been talking me into Anatomy of Scandal. I've seen the first one of that. Yes, I'm going to watch is that. Is it good? I, I it? enjoyed it, yeah. I did enjoy I am it. Don't, I'm going to have to give it a try because so many people have said to me, stop diddly-dallying about whether you should read the book or not. Just go watch it and enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, but the thing was, I read um, Outlander and then I couldn't watch it because I knew what the end of the first book was. Oh, right. And then I couldn't watch the beginning of season two because it's all about what happened at the end of oh, book I one. Oh. Yeah. So I was like, 
I was kind of gutted. So I, I might read the series, but I don't think I'll ever watch it. And yeah. the other series that everyone got on to me about was Game of Thrones. And I couldn't watch Game of Thrones. Well, My I husband did. It. I just, I thought it was too, it was too brutal for me in a way. I just found, I was like, mm, mm, no. And then I watched Vikings and I was like, well, how can I watch Vikings <laughs> if I can't watch these other ones? So it was kind of like a weird contradiction. Yeah. And then a family friend of ours actually knows the guy that's in uh, Line of Duty. Oh, right. You know, the BBC series. Oh, I love so he knew that. the actor in it. So we all ended up watching that and it was kind of like a big oh, family Mar- Martin Constant. thing. Yeah. Oh, I'll and, anything he's in. <laughs> I love him. And then I found um, The True Detective, which has got Matthew McConaughey in it. My son watched that and thought it was great, but I found that too brutal, so I didn't watch it. I, I've only I've watched the first four episodes and it's that way. I'm okay if I'm watching it in sewing because I'm not directly watching it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think I'll be okay if I keep doing it like that. It was like the same, but, <laughs> but I was watching, watching Vikings. It, yeah. Yeah. Cause like if I'm sewing and I, you know, cause I'm terrible. I'm, I'm, I grew up with a grandmother that believed we all should be ladies and ladylike. So we had to knit and sew and, know how to pour the tea and you know know all the manners of being in people's houses and you know know that you're supposed to make the tea if they're your in-laws and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um so I have a terrible habit that I take my cross stitch into bed and we'll pop the laptop on and we'll pop it between us and I'll stick something on and we'll watch it together Uh, but my husband's a little bit nervous because he's convinced one of these days he's going to roll over and I've forgotten to take the scissors out of the bed and you get stabbed (laughs) or something. So um, he does do this little check at the end of the night where he goes, is the scissors in the drawer? Is the needle definitely in the canvas? Do you know where it is? Okay, I can go to sleep then. Um, Because it's so funny because my dad got impaled by a set of knitting needles by his own mother. So my dad was was awful at throwing himself in chairs when he would go in to see my my grandmother. And one day she had popped her, she used to pop the knitting down the side of the the chair, as all grannies did. And of course, this one day she had a knitting belt and normally she would put the pointy ends in her knitting belt and then put the belt in the chair. Mm -hmm. But she didn't and my dad jumped into the seat and it, he was so lucky. It just went right through the fatty tissue only of his side. Oh. But she felt so guilty after that. She used to be works from, yeah, from wine bottles on the ends because she was terrified my dad would do it again. And, and so um, I always have that in the back of my head of making sure I know where the scissors are and the needles are because yes, I, can see I why. just don't want somebody to, to jump on a pair and just, you know, and oh, when my wow. dad came down, I hid the knitting because I was like, "You ain't stabbing yourself in my house. <laughs> I'm not taking you to the hospital." You know, yes, <laughs> how totally do you that? Yes, I didn't really stab him, officer. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and and my nan, she was she wasn't very sympathetic to him when he got stabbed with her knitting needles. She just <laughs> sort of pulled them out and said, "Oh, you're you're fine," and stuck a stuck a sticky plaster on it. Poor man. <laughs> But that, that was just the attitude for Shetland women. Yeah. You, know, you, you didn't go to A&E unless it was sort of falling off and it was definitely emergency. Yeah. But she thought it was hilarious because I spent more time in A&E than I did in my own house. Oh, <laughs> I was one of those kids. 
you know, if it was going to happen to somebody, it was going to happen to me. Oh, shame. So I rolled my ankles and I fell off fences and I dislocated my knee or I dislocated both my hips or my... I would always have something. And if I screamed dad, which was my go-to, dad, he's like, oh, God, she's done something. Uh, right, okay. You know, and my dad actually went and got his, his first aid certificates because of me. Because it was so sick and tired of having to bandage me back together. Makes and, sense, though, and then it? he would use me as a practice dummy. Yeah. So I was the practice dummy and he would bandage me up and then leave me in the sofa so I couldn't run away. So my legs would be bandaged straight and my arms would be blinking out to the sides. And oh, I used to swear when he, when he did the, the first aid certificates. But it meant that he could almost tell whether it was an accident emergency yeah. situation or if it was a oh, Crystal, here's a nice pack, shut up, kind of situation. <laughs> so, yeah, but, um, and I also did that if there was a spider in the house, so my dad never really quite knew. Yes, that's the difficult one, yeah, because that is a sheer terror one, a spider, isn't it? I know it is for me. And see here, I don't know what it is about where we stay now, but the spiders are like this size. Ooh. And Yeah, I know, right? And, of course... Mm-hmm. There was a big one in the hall and my hubby saw it and thank God he saw it because I would have, that would have been me. The house would have been screamed down. And it, it might, he he didn't want to kill it because he wasn't sure he could kill it with a book. It was that kind of big. So he knocked it off the wall and the cat just sliced it in two because it was like the cat knew, ooh, you're oh, too cats big. Are amazing for that, aren't they? Yeah. And mine, mine always plays with them. Oh, I actually had my, my schnauzer I used to have. Um, bless him. He, I once saw him when he was a puppy, he was playing with a spider and I screamed yeah. so badly. I frightened him and he was scared of spiders after that. Bless him. So yeah. that wasn't very kind of me, but I just, it was a reaction. Yeah, it's just a fright. And but my one, he, he plays it like, um, he flips them over and then he sniffs them. Oh, and then he he obviously sneezes because they tickle his nose, and then they flip back over, and then they try and run away, and then he runs after them and he hits them and they flop over, and eventually he ends up licking them because he wants to clean them, and when he licks them, obviously he eats them, and then he wonders where it's gone. <laughs> and I, I love him to bits, but see if I find a spider, I I go, I grab him, I pick him up, I carry him over, and I drop him in front of it, and I say, eat it. <laughs> Because especially if my husband's not home and I've got yeah. no one else to kill no, the spider, the cats get told to do it. in the house, definitely. Yeah, and he loves it. I mean, unless it's in the bath, he doesn't like chasing them in the bath. Oh, because bless him, he doesn't have the coordination, so he looks a little bit like Blamby on ice. <laughs> he just starts skittering all over the place, and then I, I kind of feel bad for him, so I don't put him in the bath. Or at least that cat doesn't go in the bath. But the other one that loves baths, he goes in instead. So, yeah, that's that's my trick if you, you've you got lots of spider issues. Get a cat. Because they, they, they do tend to eat them for some reason. Oh. Don't know why. It's a very, very weird one. What hobbies do you enjoy and, and what ones do you wish you could explore if you had the time? Oh, I think the... Only, I think because writing was like such a big deal, part of my life's always been like one thing I wanted to do, so it was really much of a hobby, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and now it's what I do, of course. Um, I, I do a lot of gardening, um, not much. I mean, my husband does all the heavy stuff because it's not the yeah. interesting stuff, as far as I can tell. Um, so I don't mind planting <laughs> things. He hates when we go to a garden centre because 
I always want more and I always get far too much. And then I get home and think, oh, I've got to now plant these things. Um, but I like deadheading yes. and puddling about. Yeah, I like yeah. walking because we have lovely beaches and that sort of things. And sort of really just going out and meeting friends for coffee, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, That's I the one I love, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did the gym. I was going to the gym for lockdown and I used to do it a lot when I was younger, but uh, then I sort of stopped and I never got back into that again. I'm not sure the sort of go for walk hard. outside. It's hard or... to get back into it. Yeah. And it's such a restrictive, like now you go in and they expect you to sanitize the machines after you or sanitize them before you start. And they're really strict on that too. Mm. So it, it, it's not the same as it once was. Because like, I know what you talk about. I had to build muscles for the condition. So I understand that that well. Are you a craft person? And if not, what do you do when you need to clear your mind and sort of, you know, kind of like shut down for a bit so that you're ready to start up again? I'm not a craft person. I think I started knitting something when my first niece was born and she's now got two children of her own and she's in her 30s. So that's long. <laughs> I'm just, I've heard that a lot. Really? Enough. I'm just not yeah. very good at that. Um, but no, I mean, fun enough in lockdown, I did probably the same as an awful lot of people. I, I've started doing jigsaw puzzles and I always seem to have one on the go. So I have one on my dining room table, um, all the time, really. So if I've just got, um, I don't know, some time where I'm not writing or I'm not out with the dogs or, um, you know, just maybe got 10 minutes, I'll sort of sit there and just, it, I just don't think when I do that. And that's probably why I did it during yeah. lockdown, because it was something where, you're not thinking and you, you needed to yeah. not think then quite a lot of the time, I think. It's weird because lockdown kind of, it made me go back to crafts because oh. I did that so much in hospital mm. for so long when I didn't write and I didn't know writing was such a good outlet. Mm. So for me, like I learned to cross stitch and I learned to knit and I, I found diamond painting in lockdown and I'd never done that before. I'd done like silk painting and, and mosaics and that kind of thing, but I'd never done anything like that. And my mom was driving me mental because she was she's one of these people that she was trying to calm herself, but she was so anxious about COVID and work and scared to bring home COVID to me yeah. that she was almost worrying herself sick constantly. So I came up with crafts as a way to kind of chill her out on her days off. And it kind of exploded into this diamond painting bianzo of lockdown. And me and her would do it for two, three hours a day. And it would, it really reduced her anxiety and it really helped. And I actually found it, it reduced mine too. And it, yeah. it really helps because you weren't thinking about it. We would stick a podcast on um, something, you know, that, she could watch or I could listen to and and we would do it at the dining room table and it it worked and then you know I got my dad painting and, and he hadn't painted since he was a little boy and it was really good for him because it meant he wasn't thinking about work and you know I think an awful lot of people had to find ways to take their mind away from what was happening um yes yeah. like you I'd listen to I still do now actually listen to I listen or listen to an audio but while I'm doing a puzzle um yeah and it's just complete switch off from my anxiety of, well, now I'm much better, I'm not so anxious. I mean, I was anxious thanks yeah. to my mother's also living in South Africa and it, it was just all too much. Awful there, yeah. Yeah, very, very difficult. And she was sort of stuck there really. Um, and 
so I think every, an awful lot of people found new ways to relax and to take their mind off themselves and, and the anxiety. Especially and, with everyone having their hobbies cancelled because, you know. Yeah. If you, if you, you can't would, go, you go out, go out what for can you football do? or whatever, yeah. you know, that was your Friday and your, or your Saturday night or you went to the pub or, you know, everyone had these little routines that they did to get away from the stress yeah. of work. And then all of a sudden they didn't have and that. And you don't have guess that. What, you're stuck in the house. Absolutely. Yeah. I think so I didn't I think leave Christ the house. For that. Um, I mean, I've got a garden, so I'm lucky that I've got an outside space. But I didn't leave the house. I think it was for about 11 weeks. Um, we could go yeah, down. I, so I think we could have two two hours a day, you know, for essential shopping or for exercise. Um, yeah. And so my husband took the dogs out and eventually said, you know, you're getting a little bit too comfortable being at home all the time. Um, yes. You need to actually so did mine. get out of the house. And I, I had to start going out and walking the dogs with them again and stuff like that. And I did feel much better. But I think, yes, it was a very weird time, wasn't it? Yeah. And I must admit, I, I've kept I've kept the crafts going. So, like, if I don't have a day where I'm podcasting and I, can, and I need, you know, I've done my thousand words or whatever, and I just need time to get my brain to stop yeah. jumping in 50 different directions, I'll go and I'll stick the computer on to, like, something, a podcast or whatever that I... I want to catch up on and I will diamond paint or I will paint and it's great because they make fantastic Christmas presents yeah and they're so much cheaper and they're more appreciated too because people know that you sat and take the time to do it mm. so for me it's almost like a way for me to work through my writing issues but without having to physically go anywhere because a lot of the time I haven't been able to do that yeah so for me, my illness um, slows me down, makes me appreciate the day and makes me do things that makes me appreciate the day. What's the thing would, that you would say makes you appreciate the day and sort of takes your, you know, makes you say, OK, I'm really I'm glad I'm doing this. I think um, when I was going through my divorce I, years and years ago, my children were both very small. I got very, very anxious. And it was my sister and she wrote me this list. And it was like one to ten. And at the end was if all else fails, eat chocolate sort of thing. And it was things yeah. like light a candle, you know, nice thingy candle, whatever. Go outside and smell roses. And she would literally lean forward and smell that rose, smell the scent of that rose and think about it. And she did this list for me and I actually did do that. And it was the first time I appreciated things like, you know, the brightness of of green like a green hedge or a green grass after yeah. rain and stuff like that and it again it made me focus on those sorts of things um so I do I love walking around my garden and and looking at the plants and you know breathing them in and stuff and I do as I said I live near like like you do and and I live near the sea and it's very loud obviously I can hear it all the time um and every night I go outside and I always look up at the stars I love looking at the stars uh and the moon or whatever and I just sort of listen to the sea and it totally calms me down. Not that I'm not very calm, actually. Nowadays, I tend to be quite calm. Um, but it's just sort of relaxing, gets my brain ready yeah. to sort of go to bed. And then I sort of like breathe in a few times and try and sort of like work out what what are those scents. You know, it's always slightly like salty yeah. air or, you know, if someone's mowed a lawn, you get that sweetness or something. Um, and I love doing that sort of thing or, or just sort of like where I am now. This is very recently built this. Um, and the other day I was sitting with the door open and I thought, oh, that's so noisy. And then I thought, 
what is the noise? It was bird song. <laughs> How yeah. can anyone think that is bad? And I thought, stop it. Yeah, no, I've gone through that. When I first moved back down and the birds were really loud and yeah. here the birds talk to the cows and the cow talks back, oh, right? God. So you open your back door and it's moo. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? I think because I've you been... just sort of look twice as if to say, did that cow just answer that bird? That like bizarre. But you don't sort of hear Nate. I mean, I I worked. I wrote in a shed for years, and then it got very rotten and stuff. So I worked from a box room inside. That was my office for yeah. about three or four years. Um, until I got this. So I was not used to working and listening to all the noise outside so much. <laughs> of course, yeah. now I have the doors open or the window. And it's like, what on earth is that? And you think, yeah. okay, that's nature. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. it. No, I I understand that well because like, I went to put the rubbish out the other night and honestly, that whole thing with the cow and the ravens, I was just <laughs> like, oh. if I walked into like a, an alternate universe or something, this is just bizarre then. So what's your favourite place to curl up during the day? Do you like the garden, the cafe, reader's note? Where do you go to just We tend read to be, I mean, if it's very warm here, definitely the garden. Um, yeah, it, you know, but it's, it's Britain, too, so it's too not windy. It's quite high where I'm, so it can be quite windy. Um, um, I've got a conservatory and I love sitting in there. I just love it. There's sort of a sense. That's my favourite too. Really? I don't have you, one at the moment. Yeah. It's like being outside. My aunt's favourite, yeah. But it's, you know, warmer, <laughs> cosy and comfortable my, and stuff. I was so lucky growing up because my aunt had this huge, massive conservatory. And you could have a dining table and a sitting area and all this other crazy-ass stuff in it. And... I loved in the summer when my my nan would take me to hers because she'd be babysitting and I would sit in her in her conservatory and I would read for a really long time drinking tea and just sometimes having lemonade if my nan was feeling you know a little bit um worried about my weight or whatever and and it was lovely and she used to let me go up quite frequently and just sort of sit in there and we would have our teas and our coffees in there and and just chat and then my nan also had this this window seat in her living room that overlooked the oh, main road lovely. with this like bench seat on it that my grandfather had made her and I loved that bench seat so much because we would just sit there and we would read or we would talk about life or, or what was going on with me or or you know why I was hiding at hers or whatever and she loved that and I loved that too and I that's what I really want when I get my permanent home yes, is to have a window, of a, seat of a window seat so far or a conservatory that I can go into mm. and that's just my area and I can close the door and the cats don't get in and I can just yeah. have some peace and quiet for five minutes and yeah and and my, my husband's great he he built me a craft table so I have that for going to and I have um he, I had a reader's note, but because we had to get more sofas because my mum and dad were staying for a little while, I had to go get another sofa. So my little living room is a bit cramped now. So it's, so sometimes I just go to the bath and I disappear in there and that's my place to go. And then I read in bed at night and those are my sort of favourite favorite hidey holes, so to speak. So, yeah. Now we're going on to the fun part of the uh, podcast. The readers love, well, the listeners all love this um, from my small trial they did anyway. So we're going to play a word association game. Um, so you can associate these words to a book or to uh, a word, whatever you feel comfortable with. Just 
fire something back at me and we'll take it from there. Okay. So the first word, uh, the first phrase I should say is ice cream cake. Oh, ice cream cake. Um, the, I don't know. I, I don't, so I haven't got a book that, that sort of goes with that, I don't think. Um, I suppose ice cream cake. Um, the only ice cream cake I think I ever recall having was um, my stepfather years ago bought one. It was a big surprise for us all, but nobody liked it because I had fruit in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember my grand's uh, 90th. She had a big ice cream cake. And I remember I've got sensitive, I've got two sensitive teeth. So when you bite into, and I don't like biting ice cream for that reason. And it was just this slice of frozen ice cream layers. And I remember thinking to myself, I hate this because I've got sensitive teeth, but I have to smile and look like I'm enjoying it because she's watching me. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) kind of, well, sort of grimacing in the background thinking, oh, this hurts. So how about cookies? Cookies. That's always that's that's actually got to be chocolate. So anything to do with chocolate, as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> I realised last I year. I like that one. Huh? Sorry. I said I I like that answer because like chocolate chips is like the favourite kind for everybody, isn't it? Yes, got to be chocolate. Yeah. So, so, so brownies. Huh? Sorry brownies oh brown brownies um same sort of thing chocolate i am i'm a bit of a chocolate addict unfortunately uh my sister's (laughs) nutritional therapist and told me last year they have far too much sugar in my diet so i cut it right right down um yeah but yes so most things probably associate with chocolate in my head (laughs) oh don't worry about that that's fine sunshine Sunshine. I suppose living in living here. I mean, my new series is yeah. Sunshine Island series. Um, well, there you go. I, I did tie that one into your your book, actually. Oh, so. did you? <laughs> I kind of threw you. I threw you one. <laughs> we, we're supposed Beaches. to be the sunniest place in in the British Isles. Um, uh, the yeah, warmest by I don't know, probably a degree or something. But yeah, it's sunny here a lot usually. Yeah. What about beaches? Beaches, again, here, uh, we're surrounded by beaches. Um, so, yeah, all my scenes on the beaches in some form or order because that's where, I mean, that's why I am every single day. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's a good reason. Um, so how about honey? I love honey. It's it's one thing I, I've had to not have because I've had to cut right back on my sugar. I shouldn't have any sugar, really. Um, and that's the only thing I, well, I miss chocolate, but not quite so terribly, but I miss honey so much because I have that on my toast every single day. Um, I, I have it in my coffee some point yeah. because I love honey so much and Winnie the Pooh yeah, and honey, I, everybody were Winnie the Pooh growing up, didn't they? I love that. Yeah, I did as well. So waves is the next one. Waves? Yeah. Oh, I love the sound of the waves. That's why I listen to every single night before I go into bed. I love it. And I actually posted a video on, did I? Yes, I think I did, probably on my Instagram. Uh, at Easter, it was so lovely. My daughter was over and we went down to St. Juan's Beach. It's a very wide expanse of, of beach. And the waves are lovely. It's where people surf at St. Juan's. Um, and we just stood and paddled in the sea. It was pretty freezing. <laughs> but it was lovely and <laughs> the crashing waves. I just love that. I must have millions of photos of crashing waves. I just love it. 
Our next one is actually C, so C. it's a good lead-in. Yeah, the one thing I think about, I mean, I went to, I was lucky enough to go, we had five holidays cancelled, but we eventually went on our sixth attempt in February yeah. to the Caribbean on a cruise, my husband and I. And the sea is such a beautiful turquoise there. And you come back here. And the thing that I love about the sea here, my, my mother, it makes me think of my mother. And she's she's here a lot now, so she sees it for, it for herself. And she's always said that she loves the colour of the sea just, you know, while there's a storm on. She goes and parks the car and looks at it because it's that sort of like jade green. I love the different colours of yeah. sea. Yeah, I like that too. And it, growing up in Shetland, it, you know, you have, depending what part of the island you were at, depend, kind of depended on the colour that you would see. So, yeah. yeah, I like that too. And the last one, but not least, is children's laughter. Oh, gosh, children's laughter. I think it's just so free and so joyous, isn't it? Yeah, that's it, why I like it. And I just thought it tied in with the beach theme quite well. So, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's very much... You know, if you if you see these little videos of little children, or if you see a little a baby or, or a little child laughing, that real laughter, I find you tend to end up mm-hmm. laughing yourself, even though you have no idea probably mm-hmm. what they're laughing at. It's that. It's, no, you don't. Um, it's addictive, not the word, but it it's sort of um, I can't think of the word actually, but it it makes infectious. You, infectious thank you that is the word <laughs> yeah it's infectious and I love that don't worry I've had that day all day so <laughs> yeah no you've it... got my you've got my total understanding because honestly I I played that game with Mike earlier today um Mike Craven for the crime author <laughs> I kept getting stuck on words and bless him he knew kind of where I was going with stuff so he just <laughs> so threw me a bone every so mind. often yeah. so. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, everyone's sort of hearing you the week after him. So yeah, uh, I was such a so, so saving grace. It really was. Um, and me and him, we did two and a half hours today as well. So it's yeah, it's been interesting. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank it's you been so truly much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. And and we'll have to have you on when you have your next release. Absolutely. You know, that's what I say. Let me know when your next book's coming out and I'll I'll have you back on because this this is like going to run all year round. So, um, which is good because then authors who have got new books coming out, they can get in touch and say, hey, my book's out, such and such. Okay, we'll get you on the month before or something. You know, it's brilliant. It's good because it means I can sort of roughly schedule it for then. And also, it means that if I get the book beforehand, I can sometimes tie the questions into the book a little bit better yeah. too so oh, it's handy because sure. I'm, I'm doing that with uh shirley cannon she just sent me her one over and when i did fiona cummings's uh podcast then we did that as well so it's it's a lot of fun and i i really enjoy it so thank you so much for coming on i know thank it was a bit you. of a hassle but we got there we did we get there. there so uh no, it's been good fun yeah and um, i get you guys will not believe who's on next week it's another amazing female author and i cannot wait to share you all with her so Make sure you check in next week. Bye.